Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Be revolutionary. UMass is the Commonwealth's flagship public research university and committed to the relentless pursuit of progress. Learn more at umass.edu. I'm Jim Browdy, ahead on Boston Public Radio. The Green Line Extension's Medford branch is finally open with hundreds of riders gathering this morning to celebrate. Want to know, are you returning to public transit in whatever phase of the pandemic this is? Does the long-awaited Green Line Extension opening give you hope for the MBTA? Or are you watching the Orange Line and thinking, maybe not? Call or text at 877-301-8970. I'm Jared Bowen, and for Marjorie Egan, then the Washington Post's E.J. Dion walks us through conservatives' political crackdown on gay rights and what's behind Senator Kirsten Sinema's Democratic defection. It's all ahead on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Boston Public Radio. I am Jim Browdy, and if my voice is first, that probably means Marjorie Egan has the day off, which she does. She returns tomorrow. Jared Bowen, Executive Arts Editor here at GBH, sitting in. Hello, Jared Bowen. Hi, Jim Browdy. Nice to be with you. Nice to be with you. And tomorrow, we are at the library. Marjorie and I are, as is Mayor Wu. She will join us for an hour of Ask the Mayor. So our number is 877-301-8970. It's a number to call or text. The question is quite simple. Are you getting back on the T? After decades of planning and work and years of delay, the Green Line extension in Medford is finally open this morning. Hundreds of riders gathered this morning to celebrate the opening, including our own Jeremy Siegel, who was on that first train to leave the Medford stop, I think at about 4.45. Here he is calling in to his colleague, Paris Olston. I am on probably the most crowded T-train I've ever been on. And people are excited that it's crowded. You can hear the cheers yeah. around me. It's going to be excitement up, up throughout the morning. Month. He is really excited. <laughs> can you hear it in Jeremy's voice? While it is certainly exciting for Green Line riders, the T's problems aren't exactly fixed. As you read, I assume, this weekend, the Orange Line experienced major delays over the weekend, even after an unprecedented month-long shutdown and repair process that was supposed to get it all done once and for all. And don't forget the news just this last week that the federal transit inspectors from, I think it's called the FTA, rejected more than half the MBTA's proposed plans to improve safety and efficiency on subways, even though the leaders of the T said they're minor. So give us a call or a text, 877-301-8970. Are you back on the trains and buses? Is the Green Line extension what it'll take to get you back on the T, or would you rather jump into the Mystic? The number is 877-301-8970. I just checked. The first uh, Green Line train on the Medford extension went out exactly six hours and 23 minutes ago. And to my knowledge, again, as I just checked right for one on the air, Jared, no one has had to jump in any river. There haven't been any fires, no stoppages. So it is a uh, it's uh, off as planned. I thought you were going to say it left at uh, yeah six hours ago, and it's just pulling <laughs> into Back Bay now. By the way, this thing, it is really really great that this is happening. A couple yeah. of billion dollars. It's been delayed. I think Mike Capuana, who was a big shot on the train. Transportation Committee, former congressman, had something to do with it, then subsequent mayors, then Baker. Then It really is a great thing, and I'm hoping it's going to create this feeling of excitement throughout the system. But based on the numbers that our colleagues gave us, 
we're at about 60% of ridership as compared to October in the year before the pandemic, from 1.3 million then per day to 764,000, while buses are at 73% of what were the, the level of use that they were pre-pandemic. Subway, not surprisingly to me, is only at 51%, which is unsustainable. So the number is 877 8970. Uh, the Orange Line thing, I, I'm not sure I understand it all, but was I read it in the Globe this weekend. Really disturbing. Delays, one of those forced march things where 100 people got to get off a train yeah. and marched, I don't know, the next stop or a shuttle or something. And again, this is after the 30-day shutdown that was supposed to complete, what is it, a decade or more of work that was needed. It's really disappointing and discouraging for somebody who out there who may say, I was ready to get back on the tee. Well, and that's a huge problem. The, the Orange Line fixes were supposed to provide re- reliability so people could build their work schedules around it so they know they wouldn't have to do what they've been doing and create all all of these alternate modes of transportation and alternate courses and have to adjust and not have to call the boss and explain again why they might be mm-hmm. late and and that was all supposed to go away with this and but back to the good news i mean the the great thing about the green line and this is what we all want especially in as we're doing these deep dives into the effects of climate change now is this is literally life-changing, maybe not overarching life-changing, but daily life-changing that people can now, especially for Tufts University students out in Medford, be able to come into the city, something they could never do before that takes all those cars off the road uh, that they may have had to take to do that. So this is is huge. Yeah, but as we discussed, I agree with every word you said, but uh, uh, we discussed the other day, I don't know what the context was. The downside, which is an unavoidable downside, but one that has to be dealt with by the legislature, I guess you could say, and the new governor, is it also increases housing prices yeah. dramatically. Yeah. Along, I mean, I live, uh, I don't know, a half mile from Union Square, uh, which is uh, one of, the, I guess, the first stop in the Somerville. It must be, yeah, on the extended green line. And the price, first of all, the number of built, the good news is there are tons more apartments than there were, I don't know, even five years ago. But when you go online and check out the prices, they are astronomically higher than they once were because it's obviously a lot more desirable if you don't need a car or you're near the T. And so, again, I'm not saying don't expand mass transit. I'm a big supporter of doing exactly what they did with the Green Line. But it brings with it issues that need to be addressed by people in positions of uh, of uh, power eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. Did you hear the excitement? I mean, not just that soundbite. Did you hear Jeremy this morning on he the morning edition? Super excited. There are a lot of oh people who God. love transit, so it's a yeah. very big deal to be on the first train and to experience a new train and something as we talked about has been talked about for years and years and years, and to be the first one. Don't you love that people got up at four o'clock for that too? I sort of do. I mean, I do. I mean, I didn't do it, but I love that people <laughs> did get up at four o'clock. And it sounds like, well. At least from what Jeremy said, it was primarily students. It wasn't all students. And that's, I mean, that's sort of fun to be on the first train kind of thing. Let's start in Arlington with John. John, you were on Boston Public Radio with Jared Bowen and me, Jim Browdy. Welcome. Hi, John. Thank you. Hi. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to tell you about the uh, experience my wife and I had over the weekend. We, sure. um, we were going down to uh, South Station, so we parked at Alewife. And uh, when we got on, we found out that... Uh, the tea was closed. We had to take a shuttle bus between Harvard and Park Street. And, uh, you know, wound up taking us about an hour and 15 minutes to get uh, South Station, all told. And uh, one thing that was really honked us off is when we uh, when we got off the bus, you know, we had to walk quite a distance down to Park Street. Then we got in, 
and we had to pay for another fare. Um, you know, so we had to pay double. Wait a to, second. You know, uh, I, Jared is nodding in agreement. Like that's obvious. You got to pay two fares when the only reason you're getting off and on is because there's an interruption with the red line service. Right. Well, we, you know, we walked through and then I, I saw a couple of guys who worked there and I said, Hey, how come, you know, this is kind of, this kind of sucks. Why do we have to pay twice? And he's like, well, you, you didn't have to, you just needed to tell us before you went through the turnstile, oh. you know, and they're nowhere near the turnstile. I, I would have had to yell at them. So, I, I mean, I feel like pretty much everybody on the train probably had to pay twice. And, you know, and I was also surprised that, uh, you know, the ADA doesn't have any impact at, on the T. I mean, they, Americans they with us, Disability they, Act you're talking about, obviously. Yeah, right? they, they dumped us a good distance from Park Street and, uh, yeah, it's fine for us. But well, wait a second. Let me ask you another yeah. stupid question. Why would they dump you a great distance from Park Street? Why would they not dump you right at the station? Well, there's a bunch of buses. Oh, so I see. Okay. If, you know, if you're in the line and I you see. Get okay. bus, you're quite a ways down. Well, you know, uh, uh, listen, that's a horrible start, story to start with. John, thank you for the call. Why were you not in an agreement? You knew this? Well, the reason I'm nodding about it is because I read uh, in the Globe coverage about oh. the Orange Line shutdown. The same exact thing was happening there. And there, people are very used to this, and they were not having none of it. But why don't they that's just why give them a pass when they get well, off this the is why train? I think it's so interesting what John was just saying, because clearly the T has a lot of experience with this and why they shouldn't be charging people twice when they deliberately root you off and then root you back on. But yeah, they were implementing none of that for John and the other red line riders. You know, you weekend. would think also, uh, by the way, if we get, whenever we talk about the T, we get texts or emails saying, why don't we have Poftak on rather than just criticizing the T? We invited him a lot when he got the job. We finally gave up. I mean, it was clear he wasn't coming and we gave up. And obviously, if he ever was interested in using this forum, he would have been welcomed at any time. Wouldn't you think that they would bend, for example, at least the picture in the Globe, I don't know if Jeremy mentioned this this morning, there was a band. I mean, it's, I, that doesn't improve your service, but that's the kind of customer-friendly thing and an historic opening that makes sense. Wouldn't you think they'd go out of their way, put extra staff people? I know they're short. Extra staff yeah, well, people that's a huge issue, at those yeah. exits so the people like the first caller yeah. or whoever you were talking about a minute ago knows that you got to take this piece of paper so that you can get it back on the train or whatever it is for free, you know, kind of thing? Of course, if you're caught by surprise, which you it would expect they might be since they didn't expect any problems after the 30 years of work. Well, that was the orange line thing. Days. But yeah. he's talking about the red line. He's oh, yeah, talking yeah. the red line yeah. thing. Let's go to Kira in Concord. What's up, Kira? Yes. Hi. Good morning, Jared. Hi. Hello, Monsieur. <laughs> Good morning. And, and um, Jim Brody. Hmm. Okay, so. And Wait a second. <laughs> Hello, Jared. And Jim Brody. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll take that in the right way. That's fine, Kira. Okay, go that's good. <laughs> just take it up face value. It is what it is. <laughs> so I was just going to say, um, so this is the whole thing. Yeah. So I think that this is great. First of all, I am just, I have been waiting for this to be coming to be because I knew way back when, I'm like, why do we have all these civil engineers? And to that last caller's point, that is so brilliant, ADA would be wonderful along with the likes of um, Stacey Abrams, uh, the other wonderful you know th th that um association there the two the gal and the guy that you know those two um wonderful you know people who who are overseeing things with transportation and everything what do you mean the two people we have on the show here 
Yes. Jim Eloisi and yes. Stacey Thompson. Yeah. Yes, thank oh, you. Oh, oh, you meant Stacey Abrams. Me. Yeah, I don't Jim think she's Bell- coming on yeah. the transportation yeah. segment anytime <laughs> soon. We got it. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Although you suspected okay, she would fix that too. But. Yeah. No, I didn't mean like to fix it, but I just meant like a coalition to come together, yeah. like a board, like we have for the Board of Health, or like. Well, there, like, we uh, in all for- fairness, there are tons of citizen. Sure oversight things, right? Like Transit Matters is a brilliant organization. There are a lot of organizations, but you're excited about two things. One, the Green Line expansion and the Jared is co-hosting today. Is that correct, Kara? Jared is co-hosting, absolutely. Yeah, that's how I feel. Kara, thank you very much for the call. So here's Will, formerly in Somerville, I guess echoing and expanding on what I said. Thoughts on the Green Line extension? I live right outside Gilman Square in Somerville for nearly a decade. Landlords wanted to double my rent to renew months before it opened due to, quote, rising costs. He says, parentheses, greed. What's the point of expanding public transit if it forces people who need it out of their homes? I mean, that's where, again, government uh, has got to acknowledge that that's one of the trickle-out effects of it. And they got to do something. Benjamin Brighton texts, going to be a lot of celebrations, glad handing today, but on most lines, service cross system has never been worse. The 20 plus minute rush hour red line headways and then packed cars. I've had my girlfriend in tears. I've largely abandoned the system because biking is faster, but I took the green line to work today. I'll likely end up waiting on an unheated platform the same length of time it would have taken me to ride my bike, only to climb into a crush capacity trolley. Between this and the cost of housing, it's hard to convince me. Uh, my, uh, me so that we have a future in Boston. If you ask Pauls like Senator Brownsberger, everything's fine. It's clear where the legislature's priorities are. That's Benjamin in the brain. That's not a very positive attitude. 877-301-8970. It seems to me whoever uh, more Healy picks to head the tea has also got to be good at public relations. Uh, uh, so that, I mean, one of the things that Marjorie and I uh, talked about ad nauseum was how they'll never answer a damn question. The spokesperson for the T, when the uh, the thing from the federal, whatever it's called, Transportation Administration or Transit Administration, whatever it is, had these uh, uh, areas of criticism, is no comment, no comment, we can't tell you when. There's got to be somebody who can be a face of the system who people feel, even when things aren't working as they should, is empathetic, understands that this is an unpleasant kind of experience for people and I, I'm not sure that Mr. Poftek ever conveyed that. Well, I'm, I feel like my blood is still boiling after the summer when various media outlets reported that the Globe, or that the T, the Globe was among those who reported it, uh, that the T had information about oh, service sorry. failures and whatnot at various times but weren't transparent with yeah. that information. So there is an epic trust issue here which will definitely have to be addressed by the upcoming Healy administration. But uh, the, the fact that even in a moment of crisis where they knew people were scrutinizing and they knew they had to get information out there and they were withholding is just inexcusable. Here is, uh, here is uh, who texted this? Lynn from Melrose literally just got a text from the T saying the orange line is experiencing slowdowns. <laughs> I mean, that is really upsetting. David in a car, what's up with you? Well, uh, we live down on the South Coast and we have traditionally driven into Quincy Station, get on the T right into Boston and do our business and go back. So a week ago, I had family in from the West Coast, and we thought, well, we'll take the tea in. Well, we got to Quincy Station, found out we had to get on the bus, then take the bus to UMass, uh, get off there, get on the train and into Boston. And then when we got done with our evening or our afternoon and evening thing, we're going to do the same thing, going back and get on the bus. Took over an hour to go by bus from 
um, Quincy to uh, UMass. Now, the people were very, very, the employees were very nice and helped us through it, but there was no publication of the fact that it was down, et cetera, and it always makes me wonder. We've always taken the tea, but every time we do it, something like this happens, so we get messed up. That's all. Thank you. Well, you're talking about transparency, right? I mean, giving people notice about what the reality is if it's unpleasant. And add to that, I think last I checked, there was part of the JFK station that couldn't be accessed anymore, too, because they were dealing with structural issues uh, there. Where We also have uh, Nora writing from Whitensville that uh, formerly from JP that uh, she's lived in Boston since 2000. I'm 40 years old now in Boston. It's my home my entire adult life. I've lost uh, way too many jobs because of the orange she's line. lost jobs? Already being priced out and not being able to keep a job because no one can predict the travel time. Uh, that, that happened because of the failures. Boston is a mess. And yeah, if you just follow the, the subway lines, you see the, the, the shopping centers that get built and they're very homogenous and they're obviously trying to attract an upscale customer. Uh, on, and those are built beneath those apartment buildings that you were just talking mm-hmm. about, which are very, very expensive. You know, uh, we'll, Mayor Wu is with us tomorrow and we'll talk, I'm sure, about uh, the tea. We've had this discussion with her before. When you're a, a leader of a city that is trying to lure organizations, businesses to come, particularly with young employees who are much more in the public transit than older people are. What do you say? In I mean, how do you pitch a city when a, a central piece of, I mean, obviously everybody knows unaffordability of housing, but a lot of major cities have that. I'm not poo-pooing it, but it's a common thing. How do you pitch a city that has a T that is this, dysfunctional. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I feel twice over the last year I've talked to people from other parts of the country who are very excited about here and apparently hadn't to come here but hadn't done the research uh, and were excited to live in the city and to get around um, but really hadn't done the research to realize that we're having epic issues. And we're a little dispirited after they've accepted the job when I had informed them that it might be not as golden as they think. Well, anyway, we're talking about this momentous moment for the MBTA-ish. The Green Line has officially opened in Medford. Trains are still Still up and running for now is the hope you need to leave your car in the driveway and get back on the rails, but also keeping in context the problems of the orange line. We'll keep the conversation going after a quick break. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Jared Bowen sitting in for Marjorie. Marjorie returns tomorrow. We're talking about the state of the tea. It was really good news this morning. Uh, you heard it live, the first ride at 445 this morning. Jeremy Siegel, our colleague, was on the train. There seemed to be a lot of excitement, as there should be. It's been a long time coming, and it's huge. It's a great, great thing that the city and neighboring cities need. The bad news is the Orange Line had more problems despite this 30-day shutdown, which apparently was going to, well, allegedly was going to fix everything. The federal administrators are still upset with a lot of the things on security and efficiency, safety and efficiency, In even though most observers say they're minor. I hope they are minor. Here's an interesting We need creativity. It's a really creative thought from an unsigned texter talking about passengers on a disabled train. I thought the T was going to purchase harnesses to use so that the passengers could move disabled trains. That'd be terrific. They just put 
harnesses around them. Like and they dragged the train yeah, yeah. into the next uh, state. You know, the Orange Line had one of those things where everybody had to get off and walk. You know that a la. Yeah. I mean, yep. the image, the photographs. We talked to Baker, Governor Baker, about this the other day. The photographs from I think it was February of 2015 or March, whatever it was of 2015, when people had to get off the trains in the snow, which was nobody's fault at that. Oh, that was that record horrific. Snows. Yeah, that was and mar- the long march, as Marjorie would call it, obviously barring a phrase from another long march. Where do you want to go, Jared? Let's go to Bob calling from Georgetown. Hi, Bob. Hey, Bob. Hey, hi. How you doing? Excellent. Um, great, great show. Uh, Thanks. Uh, the the scope of the problem, transportation problem in eastern Massachusetts, in Boston, um, in Ma- in New England, um, really is astounding. Mass DOT is um, they either don't know what their job is, or simply can't do it. They're not doing it. Um, the highways are a mess. Um, there are billions of dollars that are sitting on the table. And so what's the vision? What's the, what's the plan? And what's the 50-year plan? Because this technology infrastructure is going to last 100 years. Well, there are I a mean, lot of new cars, I, you know, Bob, on the T. But unfortunately, <laughs> a lot of the new cars had to be shipped back because there were problems in terms of uh, – Construction and you know, and, and we should say this in defense of Baker, Governor Baker's administration, they did spend a record amount in terms of investment, capital investment. But according to people like Stacey Thompson and Jim Aloisi, former Secretary of Transportation, who join us every month, there was not nearly enough investment by Baker or the legislature in terms of the operating costs, kind of thing. I, I, I agree. I mean, you know, you this future thing. We were talking to Congressman Moulton the other day about how the federal infrastructure bill uh, allows. For for virtually nothing for high-speed rail, which so many countries around the world have had for decades. You make a wonderful point. The issue is not just focusing on what the needs of the traveling population are today, but what they are down the line. And I'm with you. I don't I don't see the, the planning that would suggest we're getting there. Bob, thanks for your spirit, too. We haven't had one person who's raving well, about no. all the good news. I mean, and this is really dispiriting because for years and years and years, people have just talked about, well, if we had enough money, the the, the, the issue here is money. And this is the moment where we have the money because of the federal funding that has come in and all of the money that we've seen spent that is supposed to give us a brand new orange line and the green line extension. If it's not working now, you wonder when it will ever work. And part of the, the, the feds coming in and not approving of the plan, this is dealing with staffing shortages. So there are a lot of issues not even related to Money well, it's here a, but, as well. It, well, but it, it's really hard to find people in right. defense of. Yeah. And you know, keep in mind the question one passed, the millionaires tax passed, which uh, as much as I don't know is up to a billion dollars additional uh, revenue, maybe not a billion, but a lot of money is going to be available every single year under this uh, statute if the uh, legislature doesn't divert it. Here's uh, someone who says in response to the lack of transparency that there is transparency. I just want to point out, says an unsigned texter. The information about shuttle buses is always on the T website. It's best to check these days before riding the T. What I would say to that person is, why should you, before getting on the T, have to go through an extra step of, I'm about to take what should be a pro forma kind of ride to work or the doctor or to a movie, and I got to check the T to see if there's a breakdown? Why don't they announce it? Uh, on the line? Why aren't there signs? Why aren't there staff people telling you when you get on the train that there's, you know, you know, so it could be done even if you're right. And I'm sure the texters 
describing it accurately, there are better ways and more efficient ways to let people know what the hell's going on. And think about living like that, that you have to, you know, you need to use the tea to get to work at six o'clock in the morning or five yeah. o'clock in the morning and you check the night before and you realize it might not be up. So then you don't get any sleep. I mean, it's just a horrible system. It's a horrible way of life. Well, you can't, you can't be expected before you get on the damn tea <laughs> to, to go to the website to see what's broken yeah. down. I mean, they should be telling you. Let's take it away here. Uh, let's go to Adam calling from Boston. Hi, Adam. Hey, Adam. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Long, long time listener. Oh wow. My, wow. I, About I, time, Adam. <laughs> go ahead. I listen to you guys at the old station. Um, Thanks. I, I, thank you, Jim, for, for all your great uh, work. You You're got very nice. Office alone. Anyway, quickly. Thanks. I, uh, I live at West. I take both the commuter rail and or the subway, depending upon the day. I prefer the subway because it's less money and it's not a horrible schedule now on the on the commuter rail. It's an hour in between trips. So if you miss the train, which I got to run to South Station, I'm just totally screwed. So I take the subway a lot. But, of course, the subway now is at least 13 minutes uh, between trips on, on the green line and, and the orange line. So I'm, I'm hesitant to, to take the subway because of that. And I, I'm a lawyer. I go to courts all around greater Boston. And I prefer to take public transportation because of the traffic and, you know, and everything else. And it's just, um, it's tough to make a decision as to which way to go on every day uh, because of this. These delays are just, are just terrible. Um, on the other hand, I want to just say that the Green Line extension, I think, is, is fantastic. And I, I hope the uh, new governor, uh, you know, does the same thing with the Blue Line and or the, the South-North uh, uh, Rail Link. And just keep, uh, we need more options for public transportation in the city. It's only going to get worse. If they spent the money that they spent on the big dig and the, Adelaide 128, we've had a lot, we've had a lot more better public transportation in, in Greater Boston Adam, and Massachusetts. That's Thanks a great a call, and we're glad you finally made one call again soon. You know, North-South Rail, we were talking to Seth Moulton about it the other day, because I don't know if people realize, in between, between his service in the Marines, four tours of duty in Iraq, and running for Congress, he did a lot of train stuff. I think out of Dallas, plus here, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly where. And uh, he's a big advocate of North-South Rail. And apparently, according to John Bussinger, who's a former state rep from Brookline, uh, Maura Healy has made clear uh, that she's going to be on the task force that's working to deal with it. And uh, uh, as Moulton said the other day, it's just obscene that she can't get from north of here to south of here without getting off a train at North Station, then figuring out how to get to South Station to continue your trip. So, uh, and Governor Baker was not in support of it. He thought it was uh, far too expensive, even though people like Mike Dukakis, who is a huge supporter of it, says that the governor's, uh, this current governor's estimate as to the cost of the project were inflated. But I agree with that last caller. There are a lot of investments, whether it's east-west yeah. rail, north-south rail, a lot of things. I mean, if there's a really attractive uh, uh, uh public transit system, which was reliable and safe, I think a lot of people would give up their cars. It's really expensive to park. Gas, even though the prices are down, are really expensive. People are environmentally conscious uh, more than they've ever been. And obviously, a public transit thing rather than a car is a is a step in the right direction. They just got to provide the quality of service. Uh, someone wrote the other day, John Vinocchi or somebody, it's going to be one of the couple of major tests early on for uh, Governor-elect uh, Healy. Well, the way we're living obviously has changed dramatically. I'm not just talking about the pandemic. It's because these urban areas are so expensive now and people are moving further and further out. They need a new mechanism that was to get in the city for all the That's reasons that point. you just listed too. So people people are going to be demanding it. They need it. And if it's not being paid attention to, you, don't, you it's just baffling, especially as the other one of our earlier callers 
too said, we have such brain wealth here in the Commonwealth and the fact that we haven't been able to figure this out. The fact that we still don't have north and south stations connected no, to – well, you know, That's also, the biggest have to get off the train and move to another section. We've mentioned Governor Healy a couple of times, but to wrap this up, Mayor Wu is a huge player in this along with Healy. I, I'm trying to think of the two things we talked about is that one, uh, we haven't talked about this much lately at all, uh, while there are a handful of free bus lanes as a, 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 a rides as uh, as a pilot in Boston, she wants free public transit, which would obviously be hugely dependent on the state. I don't know where Governor Healy's going, Governor Elect Healy's going to be on that, and also the housing price jump that we talked about before. Obviously, something that would help, at least from my perspective. I know there's a lot of disagreement about this. Is some form of what I call rent control, what the mayor calls rent stabilization. And I think more Healy has told us and others that as long as it was a local option, individual cities and towns could decide she'd support it. That's a pretty big deal. So their relation – do you know they met for the first time the other day? Which I was, was going to say maybe that's something they talked surprising. about in that big meeting the yeah, other day. they were a little uh, circumspect yes. as to what it was. Speaking of Wu and Healy, by the way, tomorrow Mayor Wu is with us at the library for uh, Ask the Mayor. And we're pretty excited the following Tuesday – uh, is uh, Governor-elect Healy for Ask the Governor-elect. So tomorrow, Wu, a week from tomorrow, Healy, both at the Boston Public Library. It's a great place and I think made even more enticing by the presence of those two leaders. All right, well, thank you for everyone who called and texted. After a quick break, what do Senator, what does Senator Kirsten Excuse me, Sinemus- before you go ahead, this person said, forget high-speed rail. Can we get functional, regular-speed rail? <laughs> It's a very fine point. I'm sorry. Go ahead. We were just going to tease what uh, Senator Kirsten Sinema's Democratic defection means. We're tur- turning to national politics by way of Washington Post columnist E.J. Dion. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Jim Browdy and Mardrigan. Reminder, tomorrow at the Boston Public Library. Joined now on Zoom by Washington Post columnist E.J. Dion. E.J. is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. The latest book is 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. And today, he provides the only Fall River representation on our show. E.J., great to see you. Uh, and give my love to my fellow Fall Riverite, although I'm being very ecumenical today. I'm drinking coffee out of a marble head coffee cup. Wow, so. that's incredible. <laughs> By the way, did I just say welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Brody and Marjorie Egan? You did, yep. Well, you are not Marjorie Egan. I'm I mean, you're fine on your own right, but you are no Marjorie yeah. Egan. Jared Bowen is here. <laughs> Great to see you, EJ. Hi, Great EJ. to be with you. So we're going to start by asking about Kirsten Cinema and her decision to move to be an independent and what that does to the party. It was, I think, a surprise slash not surprise as people started to really think about this. But before we get your take on it, let's let's color what you're going to take on it uh, to get some sound from Senator Sanders. So, of course, her decision to change to an independent means that there are now three registered independents in the Senate who caucus with the Democrats. Senator Sanders is one, and he said on CNN this week that he believes her decision was driven by self-preservation. Are the Democrats there are not all that enthusiastic about somebody who helps sabotage <laughs> some of the most important legislation that protects the interests uh, of working families and voting rights and, and so forth. So I think it really has to do with her uh, political aspirations. 
So, of course, she said that this was in keeping with the spirit of Arizona, that uh, there are mavericks in that state. She wants to be one. Uh, is that it? Or is it, as uh, Senator Sanders says, this is all about how she's going to survive politically going forward? Well, I think it is first about how she's going to survive politically. Uh, and she's actually underwater now in the polls among Democrats, but also among Republicans and independents. So I think she thinks she needs to do something between now and 2024. And this is the something that she's doing. Secondly, it's, it is interesting to raise Bernie and also Angus King as the other two independents there. And one of these is not like the others, and that would be cinema, which is that in uh, you know, Bernie is left of center, but very popular among Democrats of all stripes, pretty much in Vermont. Angus King is more center left, but he's very popular among Democrats of all stripes in Maine. Um, cinema is not in that boat. Uh, and I think it's going to raise some fascinating questions going forward. The, the Democrats, a lot of Democrats are eager uh, to run for that seat. Congressman Stanton, the former mayor of Phoenix, Congressman Gallego, um, these are formidable candidates. Does the center left just split the vote and elect a Republican or is there another dynamic? We can't know that yet. But I thought it was very significant that Bernie raised the voting rights issue because I think Democrats were quite willing to forgive quite a bit of apostasy. I think they forgive a lot of apostasy from Joe Manchin because they know he represents the most conservative state any Democrat in the Senate represents. But when she went south on uh, supporting an end of the filibuster so they could pass voting rights, I think that was a kind of break point for a lot of Democrats. And uh, I don't know what the polling shows, but I think that was the beginning of this slide. Last quick point, if I may, it doesn't change the fact that Democrats will still have a majority on Senate committees because it looks like she's going to caucus with the Democrats. That's a huge deal. I just wish she had given Raphael Warnock at least a week exactly. of publicity Classless. before she did this. I agree. <laughs> we'll talk about Warnock in a second. You know, I have to say, though, I, I hadn't thought about this at all because originally when I first heard that she was becoming an independent, my only thought was how classless and self-centered the move was for the reason you mentioned, not because of the bigger political thing, but let Warnock, you know, and and his party revel in the fact that they won this historic decision down there. But I have to say, upon further reflection, I don't want to gloss over the political implications for her, EJ. This is brilliant in my estimation. I read the same things that you're describing. She apparently was not only underwater, but likely to lose the Democratic primary. She now right. becomes an independent, theoretically runs as an independent. The Democrats say, well, wait a second. Even though we can't stand her and we could have beaten her in her primary, if we run against her, the Republicans going to win because she and we are going to split the vote. So it seems to me she has out thunk her fellow uh, Democrats big time. Am I am I missing something or is that not what's going on here? Well, I think that it may. I think this race is going to develop where it's very unlikely a Democrat will sit this out and say, yeah, we got to go along with cinema as the independent the way. Democrats are quite happy to do with Angus King or or uh, uh, Bernie Sanders. Um, I think that the moment of truth may come toward the end uh, in October of 2024 or September 
where Democrats will look at the race. And um, if she is running ahead of the Democrat, they might say, look, we got to elect her so we don't get a Republican. Um, but it's just as possible that she'll be at 20 percent and the Democrat yeah. will be ahead of her. And we can, I don't think we can know uh, that dynamic yet. You know, one last thing, EJ, you may know the answer to. Maybe I just missed it. I, one of my favorite kinds of stories are stories like what happened to John Doe, meaning Elise Stefanik, you know, used to be X and now she's a right wing Trump lunatic, obviously one of the top ranking. And I, whenever there's a major conversion, the Washington Post or the New York Times has a great analysis or the Atlantic about the transition. I haven't seen one on how did she go from a Green Party progressive to uh, only supporting the Inflation Reduction Act, just as one example, if there was protection for, I can't remember which group of billionaire investors it was that she wanted to carve out for. What what explains her conversion, cinemas, that is? I love it when Jim Browdy plays Columbo and asks a basic <laughs> question that no one is, seems to be uh, asking. Um the, you know, I think the most devastating piece along these lines to answer your question was by Michelle Goldberg in the New York Times over the weekend. I missed it. Where politics is primarily about self-actualization mm -hmm. for Kirsten Cinema, she argued. Um, and, you know, Cinema in certain ways is quite open about that, you know, and she is very much um, a, a somebody who talks about uh, herself and what she is trying to do and who she is trying to become. Uh, and, you know, the one consistency is that she's always been an outlier of one kind or another. She started out as a Green Party, a Ralph Nader outlier, and now she is being a different kind of independent. So, um, you know, I'm not particularly sympathetic to her politics myself, but I think there is a through line uh, to this person who just doesn't want to play by the rules that everybody else does. There's also, I think, this deep desire to be John McCain. Um, and of course, I think a lot of Democrats will say this isn't exactly McCain-like uh, behavior, but if the debate can be on that front, she's probably happy. We're talking to E.J. Dion from The Washington Post. So you both just said that her announcement uh, really stunted the conversation around Raphael Warnock. Uh, I would challenge that it's more of a blip. Uh, people are going to be talking about Warnock f for the foreseeable future, especially with his upcoming inauguration. What And E.J., you have written about him as a national voice now. What does he carry to Washington, to the party, and and what's his impact going to be? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think that Warnock is um, a, a really turned himself into a national voice. Uh, one of my favorite um, aspects of his biography is how, as a kid, he listened to Martin Luther King's speeches and sermons and tried to learn from how King uh, not only spoke, but also addressed issues where you combine a real militancy on behalf of equal rights and civil rights with an openness to everybody. Uh, you know, in a way, the, the way I've always liked it, uh, somebody put this years ago, um, King was always open to the conversion of his, ad, of, of his adversaries. And that's the way the Reverend Warnock talks. He never lets people on Twitter, his handle says Reverend, and that's how he speaks. And so I think he has this capacity to be very progressive, but to speak to people 
who aren't necessarily as progressive as he is, but say, I'm here for you, too. A lot of what I'm uh, fighting for is actually in your interest um, as well. And I think anybody who listens, I, I would commend to anybody, it's not very long, listen to his victory speech on uh, election mm -hmm. night. It was a really powerful piece of oratory. And my one of my favorite things on Twitter was somebody, and I wish I could remember who said, so should the ticket next time be Whitmer Warnock or Warnock, Warnock Whitmer? Because um, I happen to think two of the biggest winners out of this election were Governor Whitmer in uh, Michigan and Warnock down in Georgia. Do you subscribe to the notion? I, I, I lost you for about 15 seconds in my headphones. So if you said this, my apologies. That uh, uh, is skillful as Warnock was as a candidate, and I would argue also as a senator, that uh, he was lucky that uh, on the other side was maybe the worst candidate I've seen in years. And probably he was anybody else on the Republican side there. Well, I wouldn't say anybody else, but other uh, uh, Republicans more sort of mainstream would have beaten him? Oh, I don't think there's any question that Herschel Walker was key uh, to Warnock's election. Uh, and, you know, Herschel Walker on the first round got about 200,000 fewer votes than Republican Governor Kemp. Yeah. Uh, God, I hope I'm coming through okay now, right? Or am Perfect. I breaking No, it was yeah, my oh, headphones. Good. It wasn't you. It was me. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, I thanks. worry about our connections in my no, house fine. here. Perfect. Um, the, you know, he ran 200,000 votes behind Governor Kemp, who beat Stacey Abrams. In the runoff, he got about a half a million fewer votes than Kemp did. So, yes, there's no question that Warnock was helped immensely uh, as a lot of Democrats were, you know, uh, John Fetterman won by a pretty good margin, but he ran behind, you know, Governor-elect Shapiro. Uh, Blake Masters, um, you know, helped uh, Senator Kelly out in uh, Arizona. So the Trump candidates clearly helped the Democrats keep the Senate and no one more so than Herschel Walker. You know, one last thing about this. I don't want to get too lost in the weeds, but there are a bunch of stories after the the uh, Warnock win saying uh, one of the other winners out of this is Governor Kemp. And I have to say, I don't get it. Kemp was a reluctant warrior, finally, because he's not a big Trump guy, obviously. And the election was not stolen, according to Kemp, to his credit, uh, even though he's a fellow Republican, as people know. He then went all in big time in ads, uh, appearances, etc., for uh, Walker, and Walker loses by more with Kemp by his side, as you just said, than when Kemp wasn't by his side. So why are these stories being written about Kemp emerges, quote, victorious or whatever word they're using out of the Warnock-Walker election? I think there's a two-step process going on among Republicans. Step one was look at Governor DeSantis. He won big Let's get rid of Trump, have Trumpism light and go with DeSantis. I'm not sure it's Trumpism light. And indeed, a lot of Republicans in the second round said, hmm, maybe DeSantis is really too much like Trump. Let's look for another I alternative. I got it. And I think right now uh, that group is looking at Youngkin in uh, uh, in Virginia and looking um, at uh, Kemp in Georgia there. They're saying, all right, who is the alternative to Trump DeSantis? And I think that's what's going on uh, right now. And it's really early and people are going to look at a lot of people um, as Trump as Trump clearly weakens uh, in the party. 
You know, EJ, uh, speaking of, uh, of uh, DeSantis, I think we uh, people are aware, because we've talked about him more than we actually should, that uh, someone who's on the DeSantis train is the guy who owns Twitter, Elon Musk. Uh, in addition to basically saying uh, DeSantis is his guy, he tweets this week, I don't even know what this means. My pronouns are prosecute Fauci. I mean, he essentially has become a Republican operative beyond his other uh, uh demerits what's the what are the implications of this in your estimation in partisan politics not in terms of social media platforms but he is becoming with a huge platform a uh, as i say a republican operative all political commentators should exercise humility just once in a while <laughs> and there are two people i don't understand really in my heart of hearts one is trump although i think i understand him better than i understand elon musk uh, who is a mystery to me i look at musk and say there are people who are offbeat geniuses whose offbeat genius can lead them to do extraordinary things and tesla is really something and now with his purchase of twitter he is going to throw away that company, I think, that the number of people who were natural Tesla buyers who would uh, uh, look at what Musk is doing with Twitter and say, oh, my God, I don't want to go near this guy. That's number one. Number two, what he said about Fauci is truly outrageous. Uh, this is an ex you know, he said a lot of outrageous things over the last uh, period. But it's one thing to be a partisan operative and say I'm for DeSantis. But this is a guy who's devoted his whole life to public health. Uh, you know, for goodness sake, uh, Dr. Fauci was willing to be a spokesman for Trump, not because he was a Trumpist, but he was willing to stand You're next right. to Trump You're because right. he thought he might help the country yeah. overcome the worst of COVID. And so I just find this outrageous. I think that so as for Twitter, I don't think anybody's come up yet with a good alternative to Twitter. Uh, I think there is a kind of early actor benefit to people in in these media spaces, to use a word I don't like to use. And, um, you know, I, I, where else are you going to find Celtics Twitter, for example, which I happen to love? Um, you know, where do you find sites like Marxist Mark? Um, you know, so uh, I think Twitter, I think what he may do is drive it into the ground enough that he's going to have to leave, but that something like this company will survive. But he That's does, my bet. I mean, he knows this, doesn't he? He knows that there are no checks on it, as you were just saying. And we, we, he's basically become, it's interesting that we're talking about this in a day where Rupert Murdoch is going to have to testify mm -hmm. because he's done exactly what Murdoch has done, but in a different sphere. He's trying to own the platform on which these conversations can have and nobody can control him. And he knows that. And so far, Twitter hasn't crumbled. People are so, I'm shocked actually at how many people are remaining on Twitter knowing what's happening, who the landlord is now. Well, if you look at the Twitter followings of liberals, they've dropped about 10, 15 percent. Uh, so there is a mild exodus from Twitter. But I think a lot of people, I mean, I, you know, God love you guys, you tweeted out my visit to this show on Twitter. You know, a lot of people look at it and say, we're not ready to give it up yet because we're not ready to give up the connection we have to other people. Um, I think at some point, either he creates a crisis that really blows the thing up. And I think, uh, you know, some of the people coming on Twitter, some of the security issues, I think it would take issues like that to really blow it up. In the meantime, I think some entrepreneurs out there are going to see, can they create something that can genuinely compete? 
uh, with Twitter. And, you know, at what point does Twitter face a crisis? I think there may be one, but I think it's down the road. We were going to Truth Social your appointment, but unfortunately our Truth Social (laughs) account was down. We're talking to EJ Dion. (laughs) EJ, you wrote an interesting piece, and I was almost embarrassed as I was reading it, saying, uh, well, you write a lot of interesting pieces, but I'm going to reference one in particular where your analysis is one that had escaped me and shouldn't have. You were talking about McCarthy and his his allegiance, which is a euphemism if there ever was one, to the Trumpists uh, when Trump is losing on every direction he goes. And I think your your point, I read it at the time, so please update it or correct me if I'm a little bit off, is that Trump becomes harder to escape if you're a McCarthy type. I was going to say a McCarthyite, which he could end up being too. Because people are leaving the party because of Trump, and those who are left behind in the party are more trumped up than even the party was before, which makes it more incumbent on those who are on bended knee to Trump to continue bending their knee. Is that a fairly accurate yeah, that's description? A, the, the more extreme the party becomes, right. the more middle-of-the-road Republicans leave, and especially in the re- very Republican parts of the country uh, that elect very conservative Republicans, they have to show allegiance mm-hmm. to Trump. Uh, you allow me to do something I wanted to do this morning, Great. which was to shout out a very good piece in the Boston Globe by Matt Stout about how the Republicans are losing control of Cape Cod. Yes, yeah, uh, just really today. Yeah, excellent piece. And it's interesting because what is true, there's no place in the world like the Cape and Islands, of course, but there are a lot politically, there are a lot of places like the Cape and Islands where the Republicans used to have some real strength on the ground that Republicans were moderate. uh, uh, Matt Stout writes about uh, the uh, New England Yankee Republicanism. That's really disappearing and it's disappearing in the suburbs of Philadelphia, it's disappearing in uh, large parts of Colorado. You can go all over the country Mm -hmm. and find equivalent stories. Um, And that means that displacing Trump is harder, but particularly in House districts, where so many of the actual Republicans elected to the House represent very Trumpist areas. And in the election, um, the swings in the red areas kind of got redder. Now, There are moderate Republicans, a handful, who still remain in the House. Brian Fitzpatrick is a name that comes to mind from suburban Philly. Um, It's going to be very bad for them if the party becomes more Trumpist. Uh, And there are probably a dozen of those in the House majority. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how those folks fare in this uh, new world, you know, in the McCarthy world. And right now his problem is getting the votes of all the, some of the rest of the right-wingers. But you wonder if the moderates are going to say at some point, hey, Kevin, if you go too far to those guys, we've got a problem. So then what's the outcome? We only have a minute. What's the outcome if that happens? Uh, then we have multiple ballots for the House Speaker, which we've had uh, in the past, In the right before the Civil War. I think there were over 100 ballots in oh, one fight. I don't think we're going to get there. Boy, it would be entertaining if there was. <laughs> Uh, we would have a lot to talk about. I, you know, the you never bet on a, a far out outcome like that. McCarthy will give away enough to mm-hmm. enough people to cobble together 218 votes, but he sure doesn't have them yet. So sadly, we will not see Speaker Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's what I was really hoping. <laughs> hey, EJ, it's great to see you. We'll pass along your thoughts to Marjorie and the three of Please us will be reunited soon. Great to see you. Be well. Enjoy. joy. 
Take care. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Washington Post columnist E.J. Dion. He's also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. His latest book is 100% Democracy, the Case for Universal Voting. Up next, GBH reporter Stephanie Lydon and East Boston resident Francis Armador join us to discuss GBH's ongoing reporting series, Priced Out, about the region's housing crisis. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. I'm Jim Browdy, head on Boston Public Radio. Francis Amador has fended off attempts from two different landlords over the past four years to get her family to leave the apartment in East Boston she's lived in for decades. Reporter Stephanie Lydon and Amador join us to discuss the latest from GBH's Priced Out series and the playbook for tenants helping to save their apartments. Then food writer Corby Kummer on why Italians are ditching gas stoves in favor of insulated cooking boxes, whatever they are. I'm Jared Bowen, and for Marjorie Egan, then it's the Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price, plus MIT economist John Gruber on how America's bigger is better car culture is making roads more dangerous for the people not in an SUV. Then we're getting your end-of-year TV and movie recommendations. What are you watching this season to get in the spirit or just escape your family? And please, no White Lotus Spoilers, it's all next on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. Marjorie has the day off. She'll be back tomorrow. And not only will she be back tomorrow, Mayor Wu will be back tomorrow. Major Mayor Wu will join us at the Boston Public Library for an hour of Ask the Mayor. That's tomorrow. A week from tomorrow, the governor-elect will join us for the first time as governor-elect for Ask the Governor-elect. <laughs> uh, Marjorie Egan, did I say she's off? I did say Jared Bowen is yes. sitting in. He's executive arts editor. Here at uh, GBH. How are you, Jared? I'm still fine. You're still fine. Even after an hour with you, Jim Brown. It's amazing. (laughs) I was going to say the same thing about you, but you beat me to it. It's fair. In any case, East Boston resident Francis Amador has now fended off attempts from two different landlords over the last four years to get her family to leave their apartment, the same apartment she's lived in since she was 13 25 years ago. Her story is part of a recent edition of a fabulous ongoing series here at GBH, priced out all about the housing crisis in Greater Boston. GBH is Stephanie Lydon, reporter of Amador's story, and she joins alongside Francis, who's now an organizer with the group City Life Vita Urbana. Uh, Francis, great to meet you, and Stephanie, great to have you. Great to be here. Thanks, Jim. Yes, thank you both. So we will. We have myriad housing issues to talk about here, but I, I think it's always vital for us to understand the circumstances for somebody who's living through them, as you are, Francis. As Jim just mentioned, you've been in your home since you were 13 years old. We know what's happening in the city. We see it changing. We we hear about the right, the rent increases and what people are facing. What's coming down on you and your family right now? Well, right now we're not. We don't have a lease, so we're in expectations for. Alice, um, we have been in touch with the landlord um, that we want to negotiate for our lease because we want to stay in our homes. And, and why? And I should back up and say, if if you don't mind sharing what you were paying and what you're being asked to pay, and, and why your land, what is the situation that does your landlord want you out? Well, um, I'm paying a thousand dollars. 
right? Um, he hasn't asked me for a rent increase yet, so I'm not sure what he's going to be asking for. But what's his? What's the 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 concern or motivation on his part uh, in terms of wanting the apartment back? Do you know where he's coming from? Yeah. Um, well, his motivation was that he wants to build luxury um, apartments there. Yeah. So how, you've been there 25 years. This is the first stupid question I will ask you. How does this feel when you've lived two-thirds of your life in the same place and your family as well? You have two kids, right? am I right about that? Yeah, I have two kids. And how does that feel, knowing that this is all hanging by a thread here? Well, it feels horrible. Um, you don't have an expectation like what's going to happen. Every day you're thinking, so what's going to happen tomorrow like honestly it's i'm certain times sadness um i'm not going to say i'm depressed because i'm not depressed but it comes to my mom a lot to my mind a lot every day like no knowing what's going to happen yeah. Yeah. yeah so you know stephanie you, first of all you and your call you've led this thing this has been spectacular uh, it really is spectacular appreciate that, and really important contribution it, so people I, it, I assume some people listening saying well, why, what about all those protections we heard about during the pandemic in terms of eviction holds rent uh, help for people what did happen to all those positive things we we're hearing about for tenants who were at risk all those existed, and there was a moratorium on evictions, and uh, it ended, and I think Somerville was the last community to end the moratorium on evictions, and that was in June. Um, and, and now, uh, you know, we're sort of back to, I don't know if it's normal, we're, we are in a situation where we've got record high home values, where you see, I have to say that I have known Frances now since the spring. I have been to her home in East Boston a number of times, and each time I'm there, I'm struck just on her street at what is going on in terms of development. There's that huge place that's going up yep. across the street. Um, the first floor of her apart of her apartment house has been renovated. The rent is what is it there? Thirty thousand, thirty hundred dollars. Three thousand? Yeah, three thousand seven hundred dollars for a unit that's comparable to your thousand dollar unit. Yeah, so almost well, four times as much yeah. from what you just told yeah. us. Yeah. So that's the environment. Excuse me a second. Three thousand is three <laughs> no, she times said as much. Oh, she did say so. Sorry. <laughs> Thirty-seven. <laughs> just helping Jar with his math. I there didn't a do well bit. in math, but that I could kind of do. <laughs> I'm sorry, Stephanie. You were saying so. Uh, just that is the transformation that's happening, and that's I think what a lot of people like Francis are up against. It's it's the reality of not enough building. Um, and and uh, you know people needing a place to live. Did so, I read in one of your, the pieces that under uh, uh, your auspices, for lack of a better expression, that somewhere in the neighborhood of a quarter of renters in the state are paying more than half of their income to rent? Is that the right number? Yeah, and the Boston, that is stunning. And the Boston Foundation just came out with their report card. I know you had folks on talking about that. And I was just re reviewing some of that. And they in in Greater Boston. It's a, almost half of people are considered rent burden, meaning they're paying, oh, they you know, well over, that, yeah. yeah, well over a third of their income just on rent. So, Francis, you've moved into more of an activist role at this point because obviously this is not just happening to you. There are so many families like yours who spent decades in their homes and neighborhoods that didn't change for the longest time. But as Stephanie says, you walk into neighborhoods that you thought you knew now and all you can see are construction projects and cranes. So... What are you? What moved you on to an activist role here? What are you seeing in other families that has made you speak up here? 
what moved me on to an activist is the need of our community, right? In East, like East Boston and neighborhoods like where Latinos have lived and work class community. Um, that's what motivated me, seeing people struggling that way I, I'm struggling. And like you said, it's not only me. It's This is like a virus. It's going all over around Boston. And I'm seeing this every day. I, we've, we've, we're basically, this is our ongoing every day, fighting with people to stay in their homes. So what can City Life Feeder Urbana, what can they do to help someone like you? I mean, I, I know, as Jared said, you're now part of the organization. But for the person next door who's facing the similar circumstance to you, how do they help? Well, we um, tell them the tenants right. We tell them that you are served with a notice to quit. You, that doesn't mean you have to move. Only a judge can evict you because we have seen that um, landlords put pressures to tenants um, in order for them to get out, like pressure them not to take them to court because we know it's expensive for them to take them to court. So ten, like landlords are being pushing and force out tenants before they can have mm-hmm. a court in front of a judge. And only a judge can evict a tenant, right? Um, so, but, I, but but it seems to me, and I've heard wonderful things about this organization long before you were coming here. But the re, the unfortunate reality is, when the market is as hot as East Boston is, and the laws are what they are, it seems to me the best that City Life Vita Urbana can do for a tenant at risk of eviction is prolong things. I mean, I assume occasionally you can cut a deal with a landlord. I used to do represent tenants when many, many years ago. And occasionally there's a landlord doesn't want to go through the crap. And you know, if you raise your rent a little, I'll, I'll compromise. But at the end of the day, with the vast majority of people, it's just buying time in the hopes that they can find something that is a suitable and hopefully affordable alternative, right? Yes, yes, it is. But um, also, we're not just buying time, but also we're like, Organizing, right? We're mm-hmm. organizing tenants. Tenants where, as a group, you yes. mean? Yeah. We're we're not just an organization who help tenants who come every day with a tenant problem that they're getting evicted. We're also a movement, so we're building our movement. Even we're, before there are problems, is what you're saying. Yes, organizing, yes. that's great. So, Stephanie, that's staying great. in court for a moment, there are so many other situations where someone who can't necessarily afford an attorney is given one. But this is not a case. So so what is happening here as we see tenants trying to defend themselves in court? I think that's where there's a huge imbalance of power, right? And there have been efforts to, uh, you know, change the law so that everyone is represented in, particularly in housing court. And that has, at this point, not gone through. Um, but that is part of, I think, the strength of an organization, yeah. these tenant advocacy groups, because you have people like Francis out leading the protest. What do they call that, Francis? That's the sword, right? That's our sword, They yes. have a sword and a shield. The shield are the people who do what Jim used to do, and that is go and represent tenants. Um, in court. And so they, they are able, if you are hooked up with one of these organizations with legal services uh, and you can get representation, that's obviously hugely helpful. You know, but Stephanie, I, I don't know which who did this piece. It may have been Craig or whoever did this piece, one of your team. People are screwed coming and going. This story about if you have an eviction notice in your record, right. uh, uh, the, it's bad news not once but twice. Not only do you have to cope with the eviction notice, but down the line, when you're trying to find another place, uh, landlords more often than not will hold 
the existence of a prior eviction notice against you, suggesting you're a greater risk. Am I not right about that? Correct. And it was Craig Lamont who just published that story, I think, last week. And the reason he published that story is as part of our Priced Out series, people have been sharing their stories and sharing their questions. We got a number of people telling us they did nothing wrong. They got evicted. And there it is. On their record, and then they can't get. We should, no, can we, I'm sorry, guys. Just say, we should explain what that means. They did nothing wrong. It's just it could be because simply because the landlord decided to renovate. Correct. They're allowed to get an eviction notice. Correct. It has nothing to do with anything the tenant did. Not about not paying or causing trouble or anything like that. Can right? we stay just, stay on that topic for a second? I learned a lot from Craig's piece or a companion piece or something. And Jared and I were actually talking about these so-called no-fault evictions this morning. That there was a bill in the legislature to try to seal these records, just like certain criminal records are sealed. And my understanding is Governor Baker vetoed it because he thought in certain limited circumstances where there might be a dangerousness issue, whatever, landlord's entitled to know. And my understanding is another rep or senator, I can't remember who it is, maybe you do, has filed a bill that accommodates some of the, what I think, or you may disagree, you'll tell me, legitimate concerns of Baker in the hopes that something like that would be signed by Governor Healy early next year. Is that, that a fair that's description? A, that's exactly right. And I believe it's Senator Lydia Edwards who's, oh, Lydia who's, Edwards, pushing, course, who's right. pushing for this. Yeah. And it's a modified, you know, kind of a changed version. And even um, some of the landlords are in favor of it because it would still allow them to see if there have been criminal activity, but would protect people or allow them to sort of erase those evictions that were that they, in, in cases where they did nothing wrong. You know, Francis, it seems to me, as I say, when the market is hot, and as you know, East Boston is like the, is the most desirable, I was going to say new neighborhood. I don't mean new like it hasn't existed, but it's the place now where there are a lot of upper middle class young people want to move. The, the only long-term solution, correct me if you and your colleagues at City Life feel differently, is just to build a more affordable housing. You have to expand the supply or ultimately... Uh, moderate income tenants, low income tenants are going to be at the short end of a stick, right? Yes, you're right. We are not saying not built, but built affordable housing. Yeah, you're right. And also rent control. I think part of these crazy rents are are these high rents that we're seeing is because we don't have a rent control. We talked about that a couple of minutes ago, and at least from our discussions with uh, then Attorney General and candidate Healy, it seems, I think she, not just with us, but she committed that she would sign a bill, obviously the devil's in the details, that didn't mandate rent control statewide, but allowed individual communities like Boston, where Mayor Wu is in favor of what she calls rent stabilization, to do it. So there's some prospect that this could happen in the next year or so under Wu and Healy, correct? Hopefully, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're talking to uh, uh, to uh, Stephanie Lydon, who is the person who has been on top of this great series, Priced Out, that's been going on. How long has this thing been happening? Uh, we started in June, so most of the year, half the year anyway. And East Boston resident and activist, Francis Amador. So, Stephanie, if we broaden this out, this isn't simply a Boston problem, of course. We know how expensive it is to live in this region and Massachusetts. So what is the impact here as we begin to look at people being priced out of Worcester and other cities and what that means for very small surrounding towns? Exactly. It is regional. I think that's something that that housing folks, people in this industry, uh, talk about all the time. It's not just about whether we're building housing in Boston or Medford or Watertown. It's about are we building housing regionally? And Worcester has become a hot place for development, Um, partly because people are being pushed out of the greater Boston area. 
Um, and uh, Sam Turkin, our Worcester Bureau reporter, did a fantastic piece looking at where do you go? You can't afford Worcester anymore. What happens? And he found people are moving to some of these smaller communities outside of Worcester. And now these smaller communities are feeling the crunch because they only have so much, you know, affordable housing as well. So it's it's a sort of domino effect. He talked to a, a guy living out of his car, works two jobs. And, that was uh, incredible. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. That was a heartbreaking story. <laughs> and so what are, are the town, do towns have the mechanism to, to handle this? Because I know some of those small towns, and I can't even imagine that there are a huge number of apartments there, which is why this gentleman is sleeping in his car, because it's a struggle for him to find something, to, first of all, to, something affordable, but just find something in general. Correct. I mean, the, the answer, I think, from Sam's reporting is, you know, no, it's just sort of passing the buck. Some of these smaller towns are now struggling. The Worcester City Council, I will say, after that uh, piece was published, um, one of the councilors said, we need to really keep track of this. We need to figure out how many people are being pushed out of Worcester. So there's a call to sort of at least start tracking this. You know, getting, I, I don't know if this is something you may know, Stephanie, or you may know, Francis, this pending on Beacon Hill. It, it, as I said to both of you, when I met Francis right before we started during the news, I was saying I used to represent tenants in the South Bronx when I was a young lawyer at a law school. And the thing I never understood, if I were to have said to any of my clients, if you had a choice, which hopefully you won't, either convicted of a tr crime and go to jail or have an eviction notice and lose your apartment, uh, every single one of them would say, jail would be better for me, losing my apartment with my kids, with my parents who may live with me. The, the notion that there is not a either a constitutional or statutory entitlement to a lawyer in these cases. We all know that the Constitution has said if your liberty is at stake, you're entitled to representation, which is why people get lawyers even if they can't afford them in criminal cases. How is your liberty not at stake in a situation like this? And so even if there's not a constitutional right, which I wish and sort of think there should be, is there any talk at all of there being, uh, it'd be expensive, obviously, of there being statutes passed that would mandate representation for people facing evictions, Stephanie Lydon or Francis Amador? I, I believe that they pushed. That was uh, that was something that the legislature did consider, but that didn't uh, did not pass. That'd be helpful, year. right? I mean, that is that imbalance in a courtroom. As great as your activism and your organization is, the landlords are almost always represented. I know there's some exceptions, and the tenants are not. It creates a really unlevel playing field. No. Yes. Yes. It does. It, interestingly, when I was looking into kind of the, the um, efficacy of City Life Vita Urbana, I spoke with a professor at Cornell who studies these kinds of tenant advocacy organizations. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, their, their impact varies. A lot of times, as you've discussed, they, they allow people to stay in their places for a longer period of time. But she said there was a situation in, I think it was 2017, in New York City where the tenant advocacy organization pushed for just that, for legal representation in housing mm -hmm. court, and they got it through. And she said, everyone you talk to will say that it was because of this advocacy organization that this this uh, legislation passed, and people are now represented in housing court. And she said the number of evictions, even just filed, went down because the the chances you're going to win if you're going up against a tenant with a lawyer are much lower. So there was some... So that was a case where... Um, tenant, tenants were represented, and it was apparently because, according to this professor, of the advocacy of these kinds of organizations. Well, you know, you know, people may be listening. When they hear that, they may say, well, that, how, un, that's sort of unfair just because they have a lawyer if you didn't pay the rent. 
there are a lot of reasons people don't pay rent. It's not just unaffordability. It's also because in a lot of settings, landlords haven't done what they're supposed to have done and you had to fix it yourself or you couldn't, you know, whatever. You had to move into a hotel for a few days. And if you don't have counsel representing you to make that case to a judge, you're just, you're, you're there's such a, a, I mean, all, the deck is so stacked against tenants. It is really, it is un, it's unbelievable to me that, that I would, though, like to say I, I spoke with Francis's landlord, a guy named Fernando Dalfior, who was a developer. Yeah. And, you know, he, he was very interesting to speak with. Um, he said, you know, one of the things that Francis and other people from City Life say is housing is a human right, which is the point you're getting at, yeah. Jim. And he said, yeah, I agree. Housing is a human right. I bought this building at market rate, though, and I have a mortgage to pay. So who pays for that human right? And I just think that is a very powerful question. Uh, is it developers? And if so, how should how sh- how should they shoulder that burden? And how should that be figured into their business? Well, it well, seems to me the answer to that is twofold. Both falls on government. I mean, this is just my opinion. Is one reasonable rent regulations, as Francis was talking about, as Mayor Wu talks about, is one thing. Yes, it might limit their profits, but they should be able to make a profit. It's a business. And at the second at the same time, is states and cities have to figure out how to provide subsidies if they're not going to build enough affordable housing to make sure that people can afford to stay in the communities they've spent their whole lives in. I mean, isn't that sort of common sense that everybody wins in those circumstances? I think that's a big conversation. And vouchers, there's a lot of discussion about yeah. can we can we get more vouchers out there and, and help people, much the way food stamps are used, right? If you qualify, you get you're able to get you know, help paying for groceries. If you qualify, should you just automatically get help paying for housing? Well, Francis, I'm curious about that notion of a human right for you. So how are you living at this point? Do you have any expectation of how this is going to play out for you? Well, I haven't... I'm going to be honest. Um, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm positive that something good will happen. Uh, That we'll get negotiation with the landlord and we can stay. And I know he might say I have a mortgage to pay, but when he bought the building, he knew what his debt was, and he knew what our rent was as well. You know, it's not that he just bought the building and he wants to raise the the rents. It's been two years that he's been an owner, and he knew the rents, how much the rent were. So he paid the price, right, when he got the building. You know, you you mentioned before you're not depressed is what you said. You said, I, I admire the strength you've shown in this situation. But I would bet that a lot of the tenants, if not a majority, uh, that you work with are totally freaked out by the prospect of losing one of the most important things in their lives, no? Yes. Um, yes. Most of our tenants who come to our... with that we fight with them, they cry when they're in court because the emotions... So the The kids cry because we, we only think about adults right but yeah. not we're not thinking about the kids kids doesn't want to move to another school because they have their own friends mm-hmm. they have their teachers they love their school they love their community so also they're being harmed by this displacement that's going on around the city because the rents are very high and, and just practically speaking is there a plan b for you if it doesn't work out for you do you know what w- what you would have to do or where you would go i have no idea where i will go um no idea can you, before you go, uh, can you tell people if they want, oh, I just found it. 
clvu.org is the website if people want to learn more about your organization and get more involved in that sort of thing? Yes, clvu.org. And people can find your whole series, I assume, at gbhnews.org. Absolutely, yep. gbhnews.org backslash priced out. All this reporting is there. Well, Francis, it's great to meet you, and it's great you're fighting the way you're fighting, and not just for yourself but others. And Stephanie, your reporting and that of your colleagues has been spectacular. So we're looking forward to more. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you both. Yes, thank you. We have been speaking with GBH News Director of Special Projects, Stephanie Lydon, and East Boston resident Francis Amador about the state's housing crisis. GBH News has been reporting on this through an ongoing series called Priced Out, which you can find, as Stephanie said, at gbhnews.org backslash priced out. Up next, cooks in one Italian town are turning away from gas and looking to an even more traditional cooking method to save energy. It's the insulated cooking box. We'll hear from food policy writer Corby Kummer about how this old-school cooking construct, uh, how it works and why it's making a comeback. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jared Bowen is sitting in for Marjorie. Marjorie's back when we return to the library tomorrow. I'm Jim Browdy. We're joined now on Zoom by Corby Kummer. Corby's the executive director of the Food and Society Policy Program at the Aspen Institute, senior editor at The Atlantic, and senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition, Science, and Policy. He can now ride the Green Line extension to work whenever he goes to work. Good to see you, Corby Kummer. Orange line, orange line, orange Whoops. line. It goes to Whatever. Chinatown for the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Policy. Oh, I didn't know it was in Chinatown, actually. I guess I learned yeah, something yeah. right there. That's embarrassing. Only when it goes there, though. Good to see you, Corby. That's the hiccup. <laughs> so, yeah. So, Corby, uh, let's talk about school-free lunch. I, in reading about this, and, you know, we all grew up in school. We all know that, you know, there are certain accommodations made. But the, there was a point made in something I was reading that you go to school, you get free teaching, you get a free classroom, you get free books by which to learn, free computer use, but we don't do free lunches. We did during the pandemic, um, but Republicans have blocked a renewal of that. So where does that stand, and is there any movement in being able to accommodate all students? What a good piece in um, uh, Mother Jones, but really done by the Food and Environmental Reporting Network, which funds terrific work, explaining the history of school lunch, how it got quite so stigmatized. So it, I didn't realize it went back to the Reagan administration, which cut budgets, tightened requirements, encouraged schools to uh, raise prices, and started sort of the pernicious idea that free school lunch was a form of welfare and they were cutting it because parents should be able to pay their kids for a school lunch uh, and send them to school with lunch money. So what that meant was effectively decades of stigma and shaming for kids whose families didn't have enough money to send them every day to pay for the school lunch. And as more and more families opted out because the food got worse and lower quality, the um, they stopped paying. And so the fewer families that can afford to pay for school lunch do pay for school lunch because they don't think the food's good enough for their kid. Sadly, sometimes with good reason, the worse the food becomes because those parents are effectively subsidizing decent food for all. So during the pandemic, there was essentially, though it was never called that, universal school lunch for everybody. Various waivers and extensions made it possible for schools not to have to lunch shame, 
demand money, but feed everybody. So it uh, sadly, no Republicans, let's just say it, refused to um, extend these waivers. They voted against them in the spring and they started really running out in September and October. Three states have voted to make it universal uh, through different ways. California, Colorado, and Maine. And it works out beautifully. The stigma drops, the food quality goes up, and I hope that there will be movement around this. Our, uh, the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health that took place at the end of September, the Maine administration priority in saying it's going to end hunger by 2030 as far as a winnable battle and a, an achievable goal was extending school lunch. And so I think in the first half, actually the first four months of next year, we're going to see some good news out of the White House about being able to cover more meals for more people. But Jared, I'm so glad you said, when did this become a cultural battlefield? It's only in the 80s with the Reagan administration. Two things. One, isn't you listed the three states. I thought Massachusetts agreed to extend a program like this for a year. Am I wrong about that? No, you're not wrong. It's okay. an extension. It's just not It's not forever. No. Secondly, there's one great line in this Mother Jones piece. I know we've mentioned this before, but this is an actual study as opposed to rhetorical sport. A 2019 study out of New York City middle schools revealed that free school lunch led to improvements in academic performance equal to up to 10 extra weeks of learning. I mean, that is huge. And by the way, almost for people who are shaking their heads at that, Everybody says you obviously you think about yourself whenever you're doing whatever you do. <clears throat> if you're hungry, particularly if you're relentlessly hungry, your performance, everything you do is going to suffer. So it's not just the humane and moral thing to do. It's also good on a whole bunch of fronts. And you've been a relentless advocate of this. Good yeah, for you. Yeah, and let me Toby add, Cover. it's not just lunch, it's breakfast. You're right. You're breakfast right. Breakfast right. usually increases school performance and it has to be grab and go because schools don't have enough time to offer a school lunch period. But having something there for a kid to grab on on her or his way to class is really crucial. All right. So, Corby, Jim and I were talking about before the show Eastern Standard, uh, a, a standard of restaurants in, in, in Kenmore Square when it was there. I think a place that we both really, really enjoyed. Uh, and then we both were saying how we weren't really sure why it closed or how it closed. Uh, but now, at any rate, it's so give us a little bit of history there, but it's also coming back now. Fabulous news. So let's celebrate Garrett Harker and his contribution to Boston restaurant going, which means kind of democratizing good service for everybody. He set a standard for good service when he first managed a restaurant in Boston took it to his own restaurants that included Island Creek Oyster Bar, um, still Row 34, which exists, luckily, uh, wonderfully. And um, the two flagships were uh, in Kenmore Square, Eastern Standard, and uh, Island Creek Oyster Bar, and they were in the, is it called the Commonwealth Hotel? Commonwealth Hotel, Hotel yeah. It was the landlords, yeah. and this was a great tragedy of the pandemic. He just couldn't renegotiate an affordable price for his rent. And as I recall, this standoff with the landlord had predated the pandemic. And when every landlord started facing huge losses, some government assistance, but maybe not enough, landlords really dug in. And in the case of this negotiation over Eastern Standard, Eastern Standard had to leave. And that was a huge tragedy. Um, now, excitingly, Garrett Harker was putting on Instagram 
that a big construction site that's nothing but sort of bare walls and a lot of silver pipes in the walls and ceiling saying this space may not look like much right now, but come next year, it'll be full of a new team, plates of steak for eating bread pudding, burgers and plat of the day and guests new of old. It's great. And it's going to be, it is at 7075 Beacon, new Bauer apartment building. So this is just fantastic news. But what's great about that restaurant, Eastern Standard, is you could go at any time with any mix of people. And having restaurants, it creates a sort of equalizing effect in a city, you know, from the most elite rich people to families just out for a really good time, lots of affordable points of entry. Um and a really friendly atmosphere because that's what Garrett Harker restaurants always have. You know, when you were listing the the uh, uh, the places that he's responsible for, I think you left out one that I love that's not as cel- – well, maybe it's not celebrated as much because it's not in Boston. You ever been to Branch Line in Watertown? I'm 90% sure. You, did you say that yeah, already? Yeah, he's a partner in it. Yeah, it's he's Andrew whatever his it. name is and he. It's fabulous. It's a great, it's great fabulous, place. And they have the best chicken yeah. fat – Bread dip. Remember, they have fabulous spit roasted chicken that's like the rotisserie thing, yeah. And then they capture the fat and they give it to you with this great bread. So it's enough to salivate. There's so much there, and it really transformed Watertown dining. And you can park, and it's great outside in the summer, even though it's not summer. It's a really great thing. We're talking to uh, Corby Cummer there. Let's talk. We, we, we ever who doesn't love vintage things, and we I, we loved reading about what's happening in Italy right now with cooking boxes, whatever they are, as a, a means to return to the past to save money on the very high escalating present gas prices. So, can we have um, each of us three gives a little um, pronunciation contest in Silvia Poggioli because it's one of the most <laughs> fun things in the world to pronounce her name, Silvia Poggioli. Okay. All right. You're not even trying to. Um, <laughs> Sylvia Pajoli. Oh, that's pretty good. Okay. Right. You need that's an access. Nice. Good. So she, um, long time, wonderful NPR contributor, went up to Tuscany and interviewed um, a woman who is reviving a 1941 wartime practice, but it's really an ancient practice of. It's slow cooking. So what we all love about the hot crock pot, it's a crock pot, but it's oh. in Italy. It's in Tuscany. And it you so what you said, a cooking box is just a crock pot we're getting all excited about? Get excited about it. It's great because it doesn't use any energy. As opposed oh. to low voltage, you can leave a stew oh. all day. Oh. In this case, you do use a certain amount of cooking heat on top of your stove or in the oven to bring it to a boil for 10 minutes, for 20 minutes, a simmer. Then you put the whole pot, which shouldn't have a long handle, so you can put it into this incredibly cute quilted cozy that looks like a big (laughs) pillow cover or a hat box. And in the case of um, this Tuscan town, it has wonderful um, sheep farming, but it's substandard wool that always has to be sold off kind of for scrap. In this case, it stuffs these little pads. They pad and they cushion it and you you zip it close like this wonderful, comfy um, comforter or, or duvet for your pot. And what does it do? It has um, completely wraparound heat that captures the heat, the limited amount of fuel you used in your gas range or your electric range, and top and you leave it in for two hours for three hours for four hours 
it completes the cooking. And, you know, Ashkenazi Jews grew up with chalant, a beet, uh, uh, a beef and bean dish that would um, cool in an oven overnight. And it would be in a very low, low, low oven that used very little fuel. Huh. These um, ancient cooking conservation techniques were revived in World War II. Fabulous MFK Fisher book called How to Cook a Wolf used exactly this method of conserving fuel. So now it's back, but you know, it's the design of these adorable printed cotton cozies that make it so appealing. That's a pretty amazing. So what are they called again? Cooking boxes. Are you one of those uh, people? Do you look down your nose at those of us who use crock pots or no? Obviously I never look do. down my nose at someone who um, makes something at home, uses oh. convenience and serves oh. a home meal to his or her family. Oh, that is beautiful. We're talking to Corby Cowery. Now, Corby, here is a quiz for you, okay? I am holding up something on Zoom. What is this that I am holding in my hand? <clears throat> it is an alarmingly large bottle of full sugar Pepsi. Okay, which is why I was a round little boy, because that's all I drank when I was a kid was Pepsi. What am I holding in my hand right now, please? A quart of, I believe, full fat milk. Okay, now why, here's the uh, ultimate question, why was I holding a huge bottle of Pepsi and a huge uh, bottle of whole fat milk. Why was I doing that, please? Because you are a pilk convert. I am a pilk convert. Now, while you and Jared discuss it, I'm going to pour a pilk for Jared and me, and we will do it, sadly, you're on Zoom, so we can't help you out here. We will consume a pilk on air while you two are speaking. Take it away, Jared. Because, Corby, I believe I should do anything that Lindsay Lohan tells me to do, and Lindsay Lohan is telling people to drink pilk. And this is taking off. And in foodie circles, I might add, it's taking off. What percentage are you supposed to mix with the milk and the thing? Do you know? have any idea? Neither do I. Okay, keep talking. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I think you freelance it. A spoonful of milk for three ounces of Pepsi is what this Oops. writer, one of the web on <laughs> Start over again. Do you have more cups, I hope? Go ahead. You uh, can't say something. So I really want to look down my nose at this food trend. What is it? It is adding sometimes flavored syrups, think a ton of added sugar, mm -hmm. to full sugar sodas, think ton of added sugar, think bad health. Your attitude is really hard. Not good go for ahead. you or especially for Jim. Jared, of course. you <laughs> Especially for Jim? What the hell <laughs> does that mean? But Jim, you were a round child. I was you a round child. I'm not a child at this particular moment. <laughs> Right there. I, I have to say, as Jim is pouring this, I'm very excited about this. I Jim cheated. I'm I will start. say, I'm going to call him out. I can't he cheated. He tasted this. this. Yes, was it yesterday? You I didn't taste it? it. I made one yesterday, and yesterday. I couldn't. I was here. I just threw this Jamie or somebody. That. One of our co-workers. All right, so God, I'm a complete is. snob about this, yeah. and I'm so 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 against all this added sugar that you're pouring down your yeah, gullets. Yeah. But I love egg creams. What are egg? This creams? is an egg cream, Most except egg Pepsi instead of seltzer. You're right. They're essentially this. They are sugar-flavored carbonated water. In the in this case, very high sugar chocolate syrup um, mixed with soda water, seltzer, wow. and milk. No, I got to be honest here. Let me be honest. I'm shocked I'm going to say this. this is the worst crap I've ever drunk in my life, I, ever. Why? Okay, I'm tasting it right now. Take, have a sip, Why Jason? don't you like it, Jim? Well, I have to say, I, mean, I want to be honest. I don't... I. Despite the fact that I consumed a Pepsi and nothing but Pepsi, there's no such yeah. thing as Diet mm -hmm. Pepsi when I was a kid. Right. Uh, right. I can't stand the taste in general of sugared soda, nor not. I can't drink no, non-fat soda either, whatever they call it, no fat, whatever it was. No, what is it called? Local, local. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, but uh, 
uh, I assume the combination with milk, because no one loves an egg cream more than I do. I think it's brutal. You, what do you think? Uh, I think it tastes like Pepsi. Can you hand me the milk? I need oh, to sure. add more milk. Okay. Maybe that'll By the way, it. while he's doing this, we have a piece of Lindsay Lohan's recent <laughs> ad for Pepsi <laughs> to get us in even deeper. She was paying deeper. nothing, we have no doubt. Here is, uh, <laughs> here is uh, what's her name? Lindsay Lohan uh, shilling Ooh. for Pepsi, for Pilk. Here it is. A chunk just came out of that milk. Okay, it's all right. That is one dirty soda, Santa. <laughs> That really helped the discussion a lot. So, uh, uh, by the way, dirty soda is like a. Haven't we talked about dirty soda with you in the past? It's like a big trend, yeah, we right? Yeah, because it's a big thing in Mormon uh, territories. Oh, right. And they have whole bars and soda fountains. Let's hear if Jared feels any differently after he had a little more milk. What do you think? I don't. I'm gonna. I'm hoping that was a chunk of ice that came out of that milk. Well, it was either there that was a chunk or of old milk, whatever. Um, so they pilk. just bought it though. Uh, I understand. Yeah, that. I'm not overwhelmed. Okay, so uh, have you ever had it? You, I'm sure, have never had it. Correct. Hello. Well, given no, I haven't had it knowingly, but given my love of egg creams yeah. and milk and soda water and 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 syrup, mm-hmm. no wonder. Um, so you have something to look forward to because the Bon Appetit writer who liked it better than you did said, yeah. aside from the prodigious stomach ache it gave me, I'd happily sip on pilk the same way I might enjoy an affogato, which is espresso yeah. poured over vanilla ice cream. That's oh, yummy. I didn't know that. That That's is fabulous. very yummy. That yeah. is really good. So this is so bad that it <laughs> makes me want to go to Olive Garden. Do you, why do I bring up Olive Garden I there, Jerry Bowen? Because I think there's a manager there who had uh, there was a manager there was a manager there who had their fill of people calling in sick and w- did did the one mistake you're never supposed to do you write you get angry you write an email you don't send the email this manager so right. sent it you're so right and you don't send it because it gets posted on social media <laughs> and boy did this one saying no more if you're sick you need to come prove it to us if your dog died you need to bring him in and prove it to us if it's a family emergency in scare quotes and you can't say too bad, go work somewhere else. So he, he, he committed this in a text message, as Jared says, the dumbest thing any manager could do. He was fired right away. It's not good for Olive Garden's brand, but it was, you know, I'm mad as hell and I've had enough of this. What a stupid thing to do, but also, you know, labor shortages and pandemic. What really interested me about this is it's a sign of however much we say the pandemic is over. You know, we read about this trifecta of respiratory illnesses. Just last week, the Times had a cover story about it. RSV, COVID, and flu and the common cold. It was leading the news last week saying this is going to be a brutal winter and more and more employees are going to be sick. I mean, what the, what a stupid thing to say. Come in and prove to me you're sick and infect everybody else. You know, by well, the way, wait, wait, you know, I don't want to out you, but since yeah. you didn't say I couldn't. Didn't you say you were sympathetic to the plight of the you know what? employer, manager? Why? I do have a little sympathy Why? because I think we've all been out in the world and we see that everybody's angry. Everybody's in a bad mood. We see how people are treating people in restaurants. So you know that they're already carrying this heavy burden. So should the person, should the manager have said those things? Absolutely not. But I think it was an insight into probably what they're dealing with. And, and it did make me have some sympathy. So you should bring your dead dog into work? Absolutely. So you, you should bring your dead yep. dog to work. By the way, uh, we want to react to that, uh, Corby Cummer, or no? 
No, what surprised me was mm. the figure that over 100,000 people in the U.S. missed work last month because of problems with child care. And that's higher even than the pandemic. So the idea of illness and then when kids get ill because there's so many respiratory illnesses going around, plus the brutal flu, you have to keep your kid home. This is creating real employment problems. You know, th- by the I'm way, thank James God. Gordon must have visited, What's that? James Gordon must have visited that Olive Garden, too. <laughs> Did he, he apologize? Is he back in good graces with those people? Or yeah, what I think he got uncanceled really quickly. I, I don't want to see him anymore either. I used to love him. By the way, three texters right in a row say a variation on the same thing. So I'll read the first one. Dave in Rhode Island. So we forget <clears throat> Laverne DeFazio from Laverne and Shirley. It was her signature drink. So apparently, and I think I did read this somewhere, yeah. that this whole Pilk thing goes back to Laverne and Shirley, which is a really popular television show in the 80s, maybe in the 90s or earlier, I think 70s. Thank you, John uh, Parker. Late 70s, early uh, 80s. So does that change our perspective on anything? You got any more sips of that thing or no? I do. I, I after I said I didn't like it, I drank half of it. Is I, I drank around the chunks. Have you changed your taste in, as an adult because you loved and guzzled Pepsi all day long as a child? When's the last time you had a naked Pepsi? You mean just a straight Pepsi? Yeah. I, you know, I can't believe how unself-aware I am that I have no idea. I have no idea when I had the last pe- – by the way, I, I'm not being facetious. All I would drink when I was a kid was was full fat or whatever they call it, Pepsi, which is really bad for you in every single way. You know that. And not only do I not know when I quit, what's even more humiliating that I don't know that you asked is I don't know why I quit. I'm assuming, I'm hoping that I said to myself the reason, as Marjorie would say – that my mother would roll me to school, which is what Marjorie in a cruel moment would say on the radio, is because of Pepsi. I mean, I wasn't a horribly – I ate too much, but I didn't eat only horrible foods. My my great sin, my my nutritional sin was drinking Pepsi, and I have no idea how I stopped or why I stopped Corby Cummer. So there you There's go. another observation I need to make, which is that there are no more expert or successful marketers in this country than Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola. Yeah. And that people who want marketing lessons of all kinds, including for social justice nonprofits, in my acquaintance, go to train at one of those marketing departments because they are the most advanced in the in the country. Am I making it up that they gave us our modern Santa Claus? Who did? Uh, Coca-Cola popularized the idea yeah. oh, of, of jolly, fat, white, 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 say in the, in the suit and everything, yeah. Can I yeah. one last thing before you go? Because you know much, obviously, you're a food guy. Uh, for those who are, we're getting texts and emails, egg cream is uh, milk, uh, uh, seltzer, carbonated, you know, water, and some sort of syrup. You generally chocolate syrup, that kind of thing. Uh, obviously, I had it for the first. I never had one when I was growing up in Philly. I had it in New York City when I was living there for 15 years. Is that a national thing, or is that mostly a New York only kind of thing, Corby? It's Cumber? mostly New York Gem Spa on the Lower East Side, but there's now a place in called Dizzy's uh, in in uh, Brooklyn. It's mostly a New York thing. Deli. It was a um, a New York deli thing. It was made, and also. There's a wonderful tradition of dairy restaurants and luncheonettes mm-hmm. in New York City that didn't serve meat, and it was for people who kept kosher and had to separate. And this was a specialty of the dairy restaurants. Um, but it's Fox's You Bet chocolate syrup. I lay in huge stashes <laughs> of Fox's sugar-free You Bet syrup 
They are available at Stop and Shop Gym for you to extend your egg cream repertory. By the way, if anybody listening has not had egg cream, egg cream, it is a fabulous and refreshing drink, and you should check it out. Corby, it's great to see you, and we're tipping, we're toasting you with our horrible pilks right here. <laughs> I just don't drink any. Exactly. In, in memory of, of Penny Marshall, everybody's writing about Laverne and Shirley. Are right they are? And apparently she liked it in real life, too, because John Lovitz had a hilarious story about how she made him drink that. it, and he hated it. Okay, Corby, it's great to see you. Be well. <laughs> Bye, Pilk. All right. All right. We've been speaking with Corby Cummer. Yeah, it is. Corby Cummer is executive director of the Food and Society Policy Program at the Aspen Institute, a senior editor at The Atlantic, and a senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition, Science, and Policy. Up next, Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price take on the moral issues of the day. All Revved Up is next on BPR 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Jared Bones in for Marjorie. Marjorie's got the day off. She's back tomorrow. Tomorrow at the Boston Public Library, Mayor Wu will join us for an hour of Ask the Mayor. A week from tomorrow, for the first time, is Governor-elect. Governor-elect Maura Healy will join us. I believe it's at noon. Is that correct? On the 20th of uh, – it is. Thank you, Jamie. On the 20th of December, she will join us uh, to take your questions and ours as Governor-elect sworn in, I think, on January Fifth. But first, it's time for All Revved Up. We're joined by Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett G. Price III. Irene is a syndicated religion columnist in the Boston Voice for Detour's African American Heritage Trail. Uh, Emmett Price is a founding pastor of the Community of Love Christian Fellowship and also the inaugural dean of Africana Studies at Berkeley College of Music. Together, they host the All Revved Up podcast. Hello to the two of you. Hey, thanks Happy for having Monday. me. Happy Monday. And to you. Great to be with you both. Well, let's start with the Old North Church here in Boston, famous for one of my land, two if I see that lantern. Uh, But the church has been discovering, like many other institutions, that everything it's been talking about for the last 200-something years is not everything it should have been talking about for the last 200 years. Uh, Irene, how is it changing its programming now? Well, you know what I like about it? It, There wasn't a kerfuffle about finding out that Old South Church did indeed had its hand also in chattel slavery. I, I like what they're doing because this is a historic church. I mean, it was part of the Underground Railroad. But the curriculum that they're imposing, and I like what they say, it's always good to expand on a narrative. So it doesn't have that kind of accusatory tone. It's like, look what you folks have done. It's like, we're, we excavated this information. Let us embrace it. Let us expand our understanding of this historic edifice. Emmett, two cents? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So just to set some context here, I mean, I, Irene mentioned Old South. Uh, that's a different I mean, Old North, yes. Old North Church. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> th- this church had um, a chocolate shop, uh, a historic chocolate shop within it, and they named the chocolate shop after uh, kind of a colonial theme thing, you know, kind of paying homage to the colonial history, uh, not realizing uh, the deep uh, and painful connections of some of the people who they named some of their chocolates after. And so <laughs> Irene is absolutely right that when uh, this information was made available to them, uh, that they began a a journey of uh, reconciliation. I can use that word here. Um, not only reconciling their past, uh, and but also uh, availing an opportunity to do some corrective work and some 
some restorative work here. That's right. And I think what I like about it, because then, then to me, they're living out a kind of social gospel. But we begin to see the complexity, not only of, of slavery, but the various tentacles, because we always think of, when we think of slavery, we think of a, a particular geographical la- location, meaning the South here. It becomes particularly, to me, interesting because this was once the epicenter of the abolitionist movement. Yeah, I mean, great. so, 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 you know, and and so, but then we got, you know, again, Faneuil Hall and its ties to slavery. And the interesting thing is, if you've been there, because now we're talking about that conversation is still going on. Do we change name? Do we keep it? What do we do with it? The funny thing about it is that if you've ever been into Faneuil Hall, there's a bust of Frederick Douglass. And, you know, you have this kind of cognitive dissonance. You say, I, I don't think the history is correct here and stuff. And I wonder what he would think, knowing that his bus was actually in Faneuil Hall. But I, what I do like is that this is not a big kerfuffle. It's not like what Faneuil Hall did. You know, people were all upset about it. This, like, we got this. We're, we're, we're moving on with this knowledge. And as, as, as Christians and, and of, of this church, we, we're going to live this out in its truthfulness. Well, when you say moving on with, with the knowledge, I think the point you're both making, I mean, I assume, is when these kinds of discoveries are made, an organization is in, in one of three positions. One is do nothing, which I think we'd all agree is unacceptable. Two, get rid of the name or whatever the connection is, which doesn't achieve very much in my estimation. And three, uh, do what they did here, which is making an, an opportunity to educate people uh, who may not not only know the connection there, but un- really understand the issue well. And I-, I think they did spectacularly well, Emmett, with the decision they made, no? Absolutely, Jim. I think you're absolutely right. And I think there's another piece here, and it's what happens when you uh, are immune or you don't have access to a conversation. And when the conversation comes to you, you're offended by it. And then yeah. when you realize that you're on the wrong side of history, you're embarrassed by it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So, I, yeah. so I think that this is, uh, Irene is right, this is a wonderful um, uh, um, case study or yeah. example yeah. of what happens when you realize um, an error and you don't dig your heels in, you actually uh, try to learn as much as you can in order to reconcile and to move forward in the right right posture. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we got to understand, because people, because I don't, I want to disabuse people of notion that, yes, uh, you know, who are listening like, oh, well, Boston is embracing its history. It's not so much that, you know, it's racist history. It's not so much that it's embracing it. it it's not, it, it, on the surface, it doesn't appear as harsh, meaning we don't, we're not replete with statues and busts of Confederate, you know, uh, soldiers here. What we have is this beautiful, you know, uh, piece of the 54th uh, Massachusetts Regiment right there in uh, Boston Common. So, so what happens is, is that we can t- take it in those, in these little nugget bits because it, it is not a tsunami the way it is certainly in, in, in if you're looking, looking at the South. I think that's true. You know, speaking of uh, err, I think was the term that uh, Emmett used a minute ago. Apparently, uh, people in charge decided that in Dedham, it was an error to have a Christmas tree outside the uh, the uh, library. I have to say, and I hope this doesn't upset too many people. I'm a big Christmas tree fan, I, I should say. And while I totally understand the concern that people have, what's a good example of, let's say, a crash 
on uh, uh, on you know like city hall or on public land outside a library. At least my take, Emmett, on the Christmas tree is that it has become a sort of a secular physical manifestation of joy and other kinds of things <laughs> that the best of Christmas brings to even people who are not of the Christian faith. Do you subscribe to that notion or do you disagree? <laughs> I subscribe beyond that notion, Jim, because I I imagine a world where libraries are also safe havens for young people. And in safe havens for young people, that Christmas tree represents the idea of hope. Regardless of your religious or spiritual pathway, regardless of your belief system, for young people, Christmas trees represent hope. And so, yeah, but you know what? I, I, I had a I feeling this is that. not going to be yeah. unanimous. Yeah. Go ahead. And you know what? And you're you're talking about someone who would go down the Rockefeller Center as a kid to see the Christmas tree. I mean, really, and I love Christmas. But what we're seeing here, really, and I think we need to name it, is the ongoing war on Christmas. It, it, it really started about two decades ago, if you remember, with Fox News. Bill O'Reilly, uh, that was his whole yeah, shtick. That was his. That's right. That was his whole thing here. And then what happened was. Um, then with let's just fast forward to Trump and he had the Merry Christmas USA tour. There used to be this whole argument, even with a Starbucks uh, coffee cup. Is it a Christmas tree? Do we say Merry Christmas? Do we say Happy Holiday? But one of the things that we got to realize that at this time of year, I call it the, the season of lights, depending on it's on these sort of what we call uh, religious calendars. It can be Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, uh, winter solstice. It can be Ramadan. And I think that what what we want to do and that since this is a holiday season, we want to embrace a very inclusive, what I call seasonal greeting that is symbolic. So you can make it a you you can make it a a holiday tree, but not so much a Christian, a, a Christmas tree. I like to say now I used to always say Merry Christmas or Happy Christmas. It's I don't I now say you know, you know, happy holidays. But this is the point. Why, why, why should someone be offended if they don't celebrate Christmas as a religious thing, which I do not, I don't celebrate anything as a religious thing, <laughs> but that in particular, well, not in particular, but that, well, I, I, I'm not saying, cause I'm not offended that nobody should be offended. If it, in, shouldn't it be taken in the spirit in which it's given. When someone says Merry Christmas to me, I don't think they they say, let's have a discussion about the baby Jesus, Jim, and the religious implications. I think they're doing the kinds of things that Emmett said. Are they not there, uh, Irene Monroe? No. no I, I, again, you know, it's interesting because someone could look at that. See, Emmett said, well, some, you know, right, libraries are safe havens. So I think it needs to be a neutral ground. I think that I think someone who might be Islamic or of a different faith see this Christmas tree and 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 see it outside of a of a of a library, library. inside might very well feel like I'm not inclusive. It, to me, it's that similar. it's a, that it's the government's endorsement of a religion, one religion. Yeah. Well, okay. I yeah, mean. and you know the interesting thing is, I just have to say this is that according to the public policy polling, because I was wanted to say now people really engaged in this twenty plus years, and it says that if you say Merry Christmas, it insults liberals. If you say Happy Holidays, it vex conservatives. So you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Well, but can I say one more thing? You know what drives me nuts? And I know it's well-intended, so I don't want to offend any listeners who I know mean it in a proper spirit. When someone calls in to me and Marjorie and says, Merry Christmas, and then says, I hope that's okay, 
it like literally put uh, in light of the fact that even if it wasn't okay, I know they meant it in the warmest possible. Isn't intent uh, whatever? Uh, Jared, I'm I sorry. Mean, I, I, well, I, what I, I was going to say is, go ahead. Wait a minute. Then Jared, but, go. I'm sorry. I mean, when someone sneezes in my presence and I say "bless you," I'm not trying to convert you. <laughs> I mean, so. <laughs> How about it, Jared? Where are you on this? What we haven't said here is how rancorous this guy. Oh, I, I mean, forgot about yeah. that, right? This, somebody yeah. from the, death threats or something, right? Death, yeah. death threats to town officials. Uh, somebody from the Human Rights Committee apparently said sent something that was so extraordinarily offensive and I think expletive laden, as it was described, that, right. uh, that they had to step down. I mean, this has yeah. just become this is exploded you know, with hate in the town. Yeah, well, the librarian, the excuse me, the librarian says, I'm sorry, what? In my 28 <laughs> years at the Dedham Public Library, I've never heard a negative comment about the tree. And she goes on to say, I was actually put in the category with murderers. That was the lowest point I've ever had because she was in favor of the tree. That's a great point. I'm sorry. Oh, Go my ahead, God. Exactly. Oh, my God. <laughs> Okay, so let's move on. It was, by the way, we can blame Bill O'Reilly for this. This is one of his calling cards. He was, I think, he invented this whole... Yes, he did. Phony thing here, the war on That's Christmas. Right. But it's not phony. Because it is the phony. point is, is that it becomes politicized. It, 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 it really has. But see, my point is, is, is this here. Something that is state-sanctioned, you need to always be neutral. You come into my house... It's Merry Christmas. But I do think... I think the Christmas tree is neutral, but go ahead. It is neutral. No, it's not. No, it's not, because it's the meaning in which we give it. Yeah, it's neutral if we didn't give it as much meaning that we give it. But no, there's nothing neutral about it. The symbolism. No symbol is neutral. That's That's just bottom line. So we'll move from the war on Christmas, Christmas to, to America. <laughs> Happy holiday, Irene. All right. And Kwanzaa too, all right? We'll move from the war on Christmas to the war on gays and congregations oh, now God. suing so that they can be removed from the United Methodist Church because it has been so embracing of LGBTQ unions and it has its second, uh, or what do they call it, ordained bishop uh, leading yeah. the church who is an out person. Uh, but what do we see happening here? as this divide is coming with the United Methodist Church? A church standing in the need of serious prayer because I was hoping that they were going to split before COVID, if you remember. I was hoping that COVID would give them some time to reconcile the the issue here. But what it does send a message here, it bothers me deeply here uh, because it says to LGBT people that you're loving a church that doesn't love you back, that we're not of the same sacred word that we are children of a lesser God. I've always said this on the show that, you know, gay people love Jesus just as much as full people, as, as straight people. And it bothers me because the Methodist church had an option. They had the one church plan or the traditionalist plan. The one church plan didn't impose on churches that did not want to ordain or, or you know, ordain LG or perform a marriage for LGBTQ uh, parishioners. I thought that the one you know, the one church plan was it, it left it up to the individual churches. What happened to that? It didn't it didn't win. It, it, it just didn't win. It's it, it's very it's very problematic. And we've had folks defrock. Do you remember the minister? I think his name was Frank Schaefer, who came up here and performed. He was a, uh, a United Methodist pastor. His son was getting married. And he, he was able to perform it up here. But then when he went back to Pennsylvania, you know, he had to deal with uh, being, what is it, on disciplinary, sort of so, some probationary sort of uh, provision was provided for him. 
you know, to, that he couldn't do the sacraments for a while. I just think it's, it's a church that is in need of prayer. And the interesting thing is not all churches, Union United Methodist Church, which I help become open and affirming, not only is it open and affirming to LGBTQ folks, it has a gay minister. How about that? How about I mean, that, Emmett? This is an interesting situation because I agree with everything Irene said. What 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 gets my attention is the lawsuits, yeah. because the denomination created some kind of exit plan. Yeah. And I certainly don't agree with this, but but an exit plan where uh, the churches who want to leave the denomination uh, can take their property uh, with them after after essentially paying two years yeah. of you know fees and 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 you know whatever. And so the lawsuit is actually over that suggestion that the denomination should make it easier for these churches That's to right. take away. So, and you know what? This is where Christmas comes in, because if the Methodist church preach the, the, the Christmas gospel, remember, Jesus did. There was no place in the end. So what they have done is that by op by adopt adopting this rule, LGBTQ people don't have a place in the United Methodist Church. We're, we're loving a church that just doesn't love us back. And, and watching the Supreme Court right now probably have even oh. feel even more license uh, to do this, to not accept gay people into their new denominations, their estranged denominations. And keep in mind the Mormons, again, endorse the compromise and the respect for a marriage act while these other kinds of things are going on. We're talking to the Revs. So we should move on. To, we'll end on a really, really lovely note where there isn't rancor, it seems, and that's in <laughs> Trevor Trevor Noah and signing Trevor off Noah. on his show. Should we, we? Maybe we should start by giving people a taste of... I, I lost my, my sheet. That well, we could do the serious the one is. first yeah. uh, where he talks... This is Trevor Noah on his last show. I think it was last Saturday night after uh, seven right. years. He spoke to the crowd and offered his appreciation and specifically thanked black women for their guidance and the effect they had on his life. Here he is. Unlike everybody else, black women cannot afford to f around and find out. I'll tell you now, do yourself a favor. You truly want to know what to do or how to do it, or maybe the best way or the most, the most equitable way? Talk to black women. They are, they're a lot of the reason that I'm here, and so... Yeah, we should play the other bite, too, and you can react to both. Here he was at the opening. I, I, I read this the other day because we didn't have the sound. It is, it's, it's pretty brilliant. He's explaining why he's leaving. Here's Trevor Noah again. You know, because when I, when I started the show, I had three clear goals. I was like, I'm going to make sure Hillary gets elected. I'm going to make sure <laughs> that I prevent a global pandemic from starting. And I'm going to become best friends with Kanye West. So... <laughs> Time to move on. <laughs> well, he, he may feel that, but he's also that rare individual who has such an impact on society and has such a platform. And I think what most people would argue is leaving too early, but he has recognized he has other things that he wants to do. Uh, Irene, I see you nodding. Yeah. How do you take yeah, his Yeah, I mean, I, it was Thursday night and it, I, I was in tears because I've, I've just followed his, you know, his career and just to see him blossom the way he did it and the tribute to, you know, to black women was just, you know, it, it, it's like, it was really spot on. And it's not because I'm a black woman, <laughs> although that does count. <laughs> but the point is this, is that he understands that he's here because of his mother, you know, he's, he's growing up in apartheid, but he also understands this, that, that, that is black, that is black women. We want equality. If anybody's going to hold up this, this experiment or notion about democracy, 
we have not only do we have a lot to gain, the whole United States have a lot to gain. It reminds me of a quote by Anna Julia Cooper, who, you know, who was a civil rights activist back, you know, in the early 1900s. And she says, when and where I when and where I enter, you know, when and where the black woman enters, where the whole race and the country can enter, because it's the whole idea that if you put those on the margin as your center, then you have enveloped everyone. You have a reaction to his parting words there, Emmett Price? Yeah, absolutely beautifully brilliant by, you know, this comedian who hasn't turned 40 yet. I mean, it's yeah. wonderful oh, that to is see amazing. what the trajectory of his career will be and all of the phenomenal things that he will, um, you know, move forward. And I think, you know, Irene is right um, that when you have the courage to say what needs to be said uh, and you say it unapologetically, um, that is what makes, you know, many of us love him even more. Um, because from his South African roots and from, you know, all the things that he's seen and experienced in his young life, for him to put it all on the line uh, at the most powerful time, you know, knowing that all eyes would be on him in this closing, you know, moment. It was absolutely beautifully brilliant. Yeah. And well, his too- insight, his, his you know, his take, his critique on American culture is brilliant. I love this. I love this particular skit. And I invite your audience to go watch it. It's where he's spoofing Donald Trump and says, Donald Trump is just in the wrong country. He's a, he is an African an African dictator, you know, and it, he's just in the wrong country. And he did a brilliant job because he sees he's a citizen of the world. So he sees this kind of imbalance of power in a very, very different way that we're just kind of myopic about it because we grew up under this experiment or notion or delusion of democracy. I don't know what to call it. So speaking of people who have the courage to say what needs to be said, Emmett, what's the podcast deal? You know, we have our final one coming up on the 21st, uh, and we want to make people aware of that. The one that's out now is with Lori Nelson talking about the importance of um, uh, being recognized and appreciation, not only racial justice, but also uh, human existence and what that means, not only here in Boston and across the nation. And our civic responsibilities as, as citizens of the Commonwealth. When you yes, say final, we should be clear. Season five finale is what we're talking. Season about. Season, season five finale, not great. not the end. This is not Got the it. end. Not the end. Five finale. Thanks, Jim. Hey, you two. Yeah. It's great to see you as always, Rev. Thanks okay, so much for listen, your time. Happy yeah. Kwanzaa. <laughs> happy holiday, Irene. <laughs> see you too. Bye. Thanks. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Reverends Irene Monroe and Emma G. Price III. Irene Monroe is a syndicated religion columnist and the Boston Voice for Detour's African American Heritage Trail. Emma G. Price III is founding pastor of Community of Love Christian Fellowship in Austin, the inaugural dean of Africana Studies at Berklee College of Music. Together, they host the All Revved Up podcast. Before I get to the rest of our teas, let me just say, I think the pilk is aging well. <laughs> I actually like it more the, the warmer it gets. Oh, you're drink, still drinking yeah, it? Oh, yeah, so gut pilk. Okay, well... <laughs> What's coming up? Coming up, America's informal slogan could be bigger is better, but when it comes to car size, it's causing a real danger for pedestrians. MIT economist John Gruber joins us next to discuss the uniquely American problem of rising roadway deaths. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Marjorie Egan is out today. Jared Bone is in for her. Marjorie returns tomorrow. Mayor Will will be with us tomorrow for Ask the Mayor at the Boston Public Library. American car design has shifted. Prioritizing passenger safety and comfort has made cars bigger and better at handling car-on-car collisions. But with car fronts grills now at chest or head height, which I'd never thought about before, it's increasingly turned them into pedestrian and cyclist killing machines. MIT economist John Gruber is with us to discuss the multiple factors at play when considering the stubborn number of roadway deaths in the United States. Jonathan Gruber is a Ford, the Ford professor of economics at MIT. Looks like he's in some barren classroom at MIT. He was instrumental in creating both the Massachusetts Healthcare Reform and the Affordable Care Act. His latest book is Jumpstarting America, How Breakthrough Science Can Revive Economic Growth and the American Dream. Hey, John Gruber. Hey, how are you? Great. Thank you so much for being with us. So, Considering this, considering rising roadway deaths, what's your tutorial for us today? What's what's the result of this as we should understand it? Yeah, I think we should start with the numbers. You know, it's yeah. sort of like we've got COVID immunity, not to the disease, but to death. I mean, 300 people are still dying a day from COVID and we're treating it like it's nothing. That's 100,000 people a year. But we have to remember there's lots of big numbers of deaths in the U.S. that we need to be worried about. And one of the biggest ones is roadway deaths, 43,000 people died in roadway deaths in 2020. And what's striking is while the roadway deaths have been falling everywhere else in the world, they're basically flat over the past decade in the US. So I think it's really time for us to pay attention to the fact that we have a preventable, controllable cause of death that's killing 43,000 people a year that we aren't paying enough attention to. So what I wanna do today is talk about what's going on. Why is it so bad, uniquely bad in the US uh, and what we can do about it. And I wanna really highlight several factors. Okay, so let's let's do one factor at a time so we can delve into this because you're now, by the way, it's 121 people a day. And you're right. We never, ever talk about that. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. And based on your analysis, I think people agree a lot of it's preventable. So let's go down the list, John Gruber. Yeah. So I think the first is let's think about how we get from place to place. Uh, We are more reliant on cars than any other country. Um, Now, we also have a lot more open space than a lot of countries, but nonetheless, even if you do an apples to apples comparison, uh, we use cars relative to public transport much more than many other countries. Um, We have basically the share of Americans who commute to their job by public transport is 5%. One in 20 Americans use public transportation. That's a third of the European average. Um, uh, But you might say, well, look, we've got more wide open spaces. But here's a fact that's really striking. In 2010, if you look at trips of less than a mile, 75% of them were made by car in the U.S. Only 30% were made by car in Europe. Wow. So we use our cars a lot, a lot. And part of it's because we don't have an alternative. 70% of all the nation's public transport commuters are in just seven cities. Basically, most of the country does not have an alternative to the car. People aren't bad. They need to get from place to place. It's, I mean, they walk a bit more in Europe, but it's more they have all, they have more alternatives. And we basically have this underfunded, underdeveloped, broken down public, public transport system. Other countries are doing more. They're experimenting with things like free buses to recognize the benefits of more bus transport as an efficient way to get from place to place, more dedicated bus lines, et cetera. Now, the good news is this is a place I feel like the U.S. is making progress. We're seeing more dedicated bike lanes, things like that. There was the giant transportation, the giant infrastructure bill, which put a lot of money into public transport as well. But this is a place where, once again, we're, we're falling behind the rest of the world in terms of our use of non-car 
safer ways to get from place to place. But in that latter piece of legislation, we were talking to Seth's Congressman Moulton the other day. One thing that they, uh, that money is not being directed to, sadly, is high-speed rail, which is a wonderful way to get people off the roads for environmental reasons, safety reasons, speed reasons, convenience reasons. And apparently that's not going to be in the mix, even though much of the rest of the world has been doing it for decades. That, that's absolutely right. And the rest of the world has been doing it and been subsidizing its use. Yeah. So the rest of the world is not only um, recognizing that when you put when you get 100 people to go from point A to point B with the same amount of energy, with a hundredth the energy, if they go there in a car by putting them all in the same big car, uh, that's much better for the environment. It's better for the roads and it's better for safety. You know, we should have made clear when when you sent us some of these numbers of these 43,000 right. and uh, that are uh, that are fatalities are dropping uh, at a far slower rate than the rest of the world. I don't know if you made this clear. The primary part of the numbers are not drivers or passengers in cars. It's people who are on the wrong end of uh, car contact, correct? Well, that was my next point, Jim, which is really the most interesting feature I think we don't think about enough, which is we have a unique obsession in America with big cars. Okay. And in fact, if you look over the past 25 years, Auto deaths among passengers are down almost half. They are. And auto deaths among drivers are down 10%. But deaths among pedestrians are up 20%. Deaths among cyclists are up 20%. And deaths among motorcyclists are up 140%. What's going on? It's because we have giant, we're driving giant killing machines. As you said, we are moving towards bigger and bigger cars. Here, here's, here's the fascinating fact. In 1985, the average car in America weighed 3,000 pounds, a ton and a half. And the biggest car on the road weighed 4,600 pounds. Today, the average car weighs 4,600 pounds, 4,000 pounds, and the biggest is 6,600 pounds. We are driving bigger, heavier cars, and in particular, higher cars, where the grill height is exactly the height where if it hits you, it kills you. It doesn't break your hip. Like if a regular car hits you, it kills you because it hits your chest or your head, and you're dead. So basically, this, our switch, and the key thing is, SUVs, which are, of course, the biggest contributor to this, they weigh about 4,500 pounds on average, which once again was the size of the largest car 40 years ago. They were 6% of sales in 1988 and 70% of sales in 2019. Seven in 10 cars sold in 2019 were SUVs. Now, that's going to go down some because gas prices have gone up. And we see people's car purchases do vary with the gas price. But nonetheless, we're unique in the world in our obsession with huge cars and it has this sort of negative spiral effect, where since you drive a huge car, I want to drive a huge car. And that's why drivers are safer, because everybody's getting bigger and bigger cars to protect them. The poor pedestrians caught in the middle, and they're getting killed at ever-increasing rates. One of the things I'm trying to reconcile, and I know this is a little bit off your thesis, which is we have become such this car culture and car-reliant and we shouldn't necessarily be that way, but cars are also safer than they've ever been. I mean, so many right. pre- people refer to them as the nanny cars. Everything is on a camera now. Everything beeps. You get alerts about everything, and yet this is still rising. Why is that? Well, it's exactly what Jim pointed out, and I emphasize with the numbers. It's safer for the drivers. They're deadlier for the pedestrians. So basically, total deaths are flat. What that's composed of is a falling death of drivers, especially passengers, which is great. But the way we've gotten that is not so much with the beeping. We've gotten it with the tonnage. And the tonnage is protecting drivers and killing pedestrians and cyclists. So, John Gruber, before we go to the third factor, you work at not at a driving school, but at MIT. So what's the economic hook that caused you to even be thinking about this? That's a great question. The economic hook is 
that part of what I lecture about, part of what I focus on is when is there an important role for the government to intervene in the economy? When is there not? And there's an important role for the government whenever private actions cause damages to others that you don't account for. We call it an externality. When my driving a big car makes me safer, but you less safe, the government has a role in mm. protecting you. And that is why, and that's not to mention the fact that bigger cars, and I drive a big car, I'll be honest, not to mention bigger cars do more damage to the roads, they do more damage to the environment. Bigger cars should cost more than they do. We should recognize that when you buy a bigger car, a more dangerous car, that you are imposing costs on others, and therefore the government policy should reflect that. Meaning the sales tax should be higher on a big car than a small car? Basically, we should have the tax on cars reflect the damage they're doing. And a bigger car does more damage to the environment. And it does relative to a smaller car that's got all the bells and whistles, like Jaron said, we don't need giant cars to be safe. With current engineering technology, a, a Tesla is a very safe car. Okay, we don't need giant cars to be safe. We but but and so basically we ought to be reflecting that in how we treat cars by government policy. Where does this does this break down uh, among a certain age group? Because I feel like this is anecdotally speaking, of course, but I know so many parents whose kids have no interest in getting their driver's license because maybe it's just not part of the culture anymore. I, I mean, I remember when I, I dreamed for an entire year before I could get it that that was going to be the case, but that it doesn't seem to be as much of an urgency for kids anymore. And I do, you know, I didn't grow up near a city. I do live in the city now, so maybe that's part of it. But there does seem to be some shift in that regard. Um, you know, it, it's hard to say, Jared. I, I, I don't know the data on that. I mean, certainly um, uh, the fact that we can Uber now has made life a lot easier for kids want to get from place to place without the hassle of owning a car and paying for a car. I think that certainly played some role. Um, um, on, on the other hand, there's many places you just can't get without a car. Um, th- th- this is not a sermon against driving. Uh, I think we do need more public transportation, more alternatives. But we just need to recognize that the way we get from place to place impacts others. And that's we're not recognizing our public policy, that by taking a giant SUV, I'm not saying you shouldn't get to have it. There are plenty of people who are skiers or hunters or whatever, and they need those big cars to get where they're going. And I'm not saying those shouldn't be allowed. I'm just saying that when you buy a car, its price should reflect its effects in society. So, for example, that would be the rationalization for why the Biden administration has introduced a big subsidy to electric cars. Because electric cars are better for the environment than non-electric cars. So we can either tax the non-electric cars, which is bad politics, or subsidize the electric cars, which is good politics. Maybe we just need more subsidies for small cars if we can't tax the you know, Speaking of electric cars, as someone who just bought one the other day or took possession of one the other day, one of our colleagues who also, Jamie, who also owns an electric car, says uh, essentially his question for you is, yeah, uh, the good news is smaller. The bad news is because of the battery, they could end up weighing more than uh, an average car. But I guess the difference, you would argue, is the vast majority of these electric cars are smaller, lower to the ground, and as a result, don't have that grill in your face kind of thing. Is that- exactly, exactly. And I, I, I think what, when you get hit by a car as a pedestrian, it's more about where it hits you and less about the yeah. tonnage behind it. Other ways can be ugly. It's a question what's your knee or hip or your chest or head. What's the next factor? I hope old drivers is part of this. It's one of my uh, pet I, peeves. I, I'll, I'll, let's go to old drivers next. Old drivers. So the best estimates are that – hold on. I wasn't going to go. So I'll, I'll get my facts on that. The best estimates are that currently about 8,000 traffic fatalities a year, about one-fifth of the total, involve drivers over age 65. 
Um, this is a problem. Any anybody who's had parents who are nearing the age where they shouldn't drive anymore understands it's hard to take their keys. It is hard to deal with the fact that people don't want to. It's such a symbol of freedom in our society to be able to get from place to place. But once again, this comes to larger issues I've discussed on the show of how we care for the elderly in the U.S. and other countries where there's more organized elder communities and more organized congregate housing. Elderly don't need cars to get from place to place. We are once again treating the elderly. They're out on their own. They're living far away. It's hard to take a car from them because they need it to get from place to place. Nonetheless, I think there's more we could do to have more regular check-ins on driving skills to make sure the elderly can actually still drive. On that note, for those who are faithful listeners, know that Marjorie and I have been on this crusade forever. AARP referred to us in their quarterly newsletter as terrorists because we had the audacity, that's the word they use, had the audacity years ago to suggest that uh, someone, when they reach a certain age, 70, 80, whatever it is, should have to take a road test again. Here's a quiz for you, uh, Mr. Professor. If you pass a road test in Massachusetts to drive and you're 16, you're now 100, 84 years later, how many additional road tests will you have had to uh, pass to still be driving at 100? I think zero. Zero is the correct answer. I wrote yeah. a piece on this for The Globe magazine years ago. Listen to this number. There are not, this is 10 years ago. There were 1,965 people from 96 to 99 years old who still had their licenses in Massachusetts. Now, this is not ageist. I'm sure there's a 97-year-old somewhere who can drive safely, but those 1,965 people have not taken a driving test probably for 80 or 83 or 84 uh, years. So, Jim, this is, this is, you know, it's fascinating. This is the old saying, I think it's due to Justice Brandeis, you know, your right to swing your fist stops yeah, as soon as it reaches my nose. My nose. Um, this is the fascinating thing. We have this obsession with freedom in American individual choice. And we want to say, well, how do you have the right to take that freedom away? But we have to recognize that well-functioning society or society that's a social contract, we say, has to balance those freedoms against the damage due to the others. Yeah. So you have to ask yourself, is it really that costly to every three years make someone over age 70 take a driver's test? Maybe it costs them a day of their, a day of their time versus the 8,000 people a year who are dying because the elderly drivers are killing them. And I, I, I think the answer is no. It, it's clearly worth having people over age, whatever the age is, take a driver's test every few years. Uh, but that is viewed as an infringement on freedom. And that's not the point. That's not the way economists think about how the social contract should be written. So it should be written to be benefit, to reflect the benefits of individual freedom versus the costs uh, to society. Well, economists, we only have a couple of minutes, but then economists also believe, I assume, and I think you referenced this in your note to us, that one of the ways to make uh, drunk uh, driving less of a thing, even though I think it is less of a thing than it was when we were young, we used to joke about it, and it's not a joking matter, is raise the tax on alcohol and make it harder to purchase, right? So 30% of, dr- of road deaths are alcohol involved. Um, by the way, that is not at all the largest effect of alcohol on health. The best estimates are that alcohol involvement leads to about 100,000 deaths a year yeah. through things like violent crime, domestic abuse. Yet, if anything, alcohol taxes are dropping over time relative to the prices of other goods. Alcohol taxes are dropping in real terms. So this is really crazy. I mean, here we have something where, obviously, we've tried prohibition. It didn't work. We should not make alcohol illegal. I don't think that's a very radical statement. But it is much too cheap relative to the damage that people who consume alcohol are doing to society. People who enjoy drinking should get to continue to drink, but they should understand that in doing so, 
there's a risk that's being put on others, and that should be reflected in the prices they pay. We've recognized that. This has been a historic victory against smoking. When we smoke, exactly we do damage right. to others, and cigarette taxes, after being low for decades, over the last few decades, have finally risen to reflect the social damage being caused by smoking. The same thing has not happened with drinking. Drinking taxes, just like smoking taxes several decades ago, are much, much too low, but there's not going up. And thousands are suffering as a result. John, I know we just have about a minute left with you, but I quickly want to ask, I think just part of the reason some people aren't drinking is now because marijuana is legal here. Do we understand the impact there? So there's a great, I'll end with a great new study by one of my students, Theo Caputi, who just did a great study looking at what happened to traffic accidents when a marijuana dispensary opens up. So you got terrific data on very localized traffic accidents. And he found that traffic accidents, traffic deaths, go, go up by about 6% right around, an, right around a marijuana dispensary when it opens up. And it's not, by the way, the traffic from going to buy marijuana because it happens at night. It's, it's people driving high. And once again, this doesn't mean marijuana should go back to being illegal. What it means is we need to recognize when we think about public policy towards marijuana that the benefit we're getting from the freedom of consuming marijuana is coming with a cost of danger to others. John Gruber, as always, wonderful lecture there with a little class participation, too. It's pretty <laughs> fine. John, it's great to see you. Thanks so much. Good to see you, too. Thanks. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with great. MIT economist John Gruber. He's the Ford Professor of Economics at MIT. He was instrumental in creating both the Massachusetts Health Care Reform and the Affordable Care Act. His latest book is Jumpstarting America, How Breakthrough Science Can Revive Economic Growth and the American Dream. Well, coming up, we're opening up the phone and text lines to get your end-of-year TV and movie recommendations all in today, in which the Golden Globe nominations are out. What are you watching this season to get in the spirit or just escape your family. 877-301-8970. That is our number. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jared sitting in for Marjorie. Marjorie's back tomorrow. Mayor Wu is with us tomorrow, too, for an hour of Ask the Mayor at the Boston Public Library. As Jared just said, the, Boston, the Glo- uh, Golden Globe nominations are out this morning, as there are dozens of those, you know, those best of the year lists for TV shows and movies of 2022. We hope everybody listening will be able to enjoy at least some time off this season. With that extra time, maybe you're looking to fill it with a sofa binge fest. So we're going to end today's show with a bit of a public service, I guess I'll call it. Listener helping listeners sort of thing. What are the movies, the TV shows, the podcasts that really left an impression on you this year that you'd recommend to others? And more important to this conversation, why did they leave that mark? Don't just say, hey, I really love such and such a show. What about the show left an impression to make you want to pick up the phone and tell Jared, me, and all the listeners about it? 877-301-897. Can I start with one that you haven't seen yet yes. that I finished last night? And I got this recommendation, I think, from both Marjorie and Matt Gilbert from The Globe last time I was on. Bad Sisters, I know I'm hyperbolic, one of the most fun shows I've seen maybe ever in the top ten. It is spectacular. It's a story, I'm not giving anything away, so don't get nervous, of five sisters in Ireland, four of whom plot to kill the husband of the fifth because he is a sadistic pig. It's actually really funny. Really suspenseful. The ending, which I saw last night, is just as good as Marjorie said it was. And here's a little bit of sound. It's Apple TV. Bad Sisters. This is in which a few of the Garvey sisters, as they're called, consider killing their abusive brother-in-law. Here's Beast. He wasn't always like that. He's 
sucking the life out of her. Well, we'll just have to wait till he dies of cancer or something. Why not give nature a helping hand? Well, that's part of it. They do try to give nature a helping hand. You haven't seen it yet. I, it is as much but, yeah. fun on the couch as a TV show can be. I will tell you, this is one of those moments where I feel like everybody I know right now I know. is telling me to watch this show, and I am dying to go home and watch it. I have to sign up for it. Apple Moves, Plus, it's great. So what would you put at the top of your list, and then we'll start taking calls and that sort of thing. So here's a f- fun one. I'm scanning because I think it did get um, uh, at least one Golden Globe nomination this morning for Leslie Manville, but I just got back from a little vacation. I was on a plane, and I watched this movie called Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, and if you are looking for Mrs. Jim Harris is <laughs> rolling his eyes, if Jim, I mean, if you're looking for uh, just a movie movie upper. It's delightful. What is it? It's set in the 1950s. It stars Leslie Manville, who is cleaning homes, and she's just a really optimistic person, and she gets it into her head that she wants a Christian Dior dress. And so she saves up enough money to be able to go to Paris, and she just kind of upends the house of Dior when she arrives, uh, because everyone is so besotted by her, and, and besotted with her, and it is just a delightful movie. Okay, well here we have sound. Our colleagues pulled it, I guess, on your behalf. This is a scene in which the housekeeper, Mrs. Harris, as was said by uh, Jared, played by Leslie Manville, finds an awe-inspiring Christian Dior in her client's room. The moment I laid eyes on Ravissant, I was the tune of 500 pounds. 500 quid for a dress? <laughs> Lord Dant, I don't mind admitting things have been a bit bloody of late, but when I put it on, nothing else matters. <laughs> now, quickly, hide it away. His lordship must not see it until I've had time to work on him. Now, we should be clear what the rules are. It doesn't have to be something contemporary. If you want to say that, uh, what's the Jimmy Stewart Christmas movie that everybody watched? It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life from like 80 years ago. That's fine. What is it that people should spend their time uh, watching this uh, Christmas season, assuming they've got, hopefully everybody's got a little bit of uh, time. I think a replay of the January 6th hearings, if you want something upbeat (laughs) to just make you... 877-301-8970 877-301-8970 is our number. Where do you want to start, Jared? Let's start with Caitlin in Rhode Island. Hey, Hi, Caitlin. Caitlin. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, I wanted to recommend the show Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. It's on FX and Hulu. It is truly, I think, one of the best shows I've ever watched. Uh, they had their second season this year. Um, it's a show about teenagers living on a reservation in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. kind of grappling in the aftermath of a of a tragedy involving one of their friends. And it's just delightfully bizarre and funny and emotional. It's also, I mean, there are so few portrayals of Native Americans on screen. Um, it's just just such a wonderful show all around that I, I have like can't stop talking about it to everybody that asks, like, oh, what have you been watching? It's just such a good show. That's also a great uh, recommendation, too. Caitlin, th- I, I, that's on my list, too. Caitlin, thank you very much for the call. Not surprisingly, the first handful of texts is if they're written by the same person, but they're not. White Lotus, White Lotus, White Lotus. I'll read one. This is Julie from Amesbury. White Lotus had me on the edge of my seat, and the finale was beyond shocking. Just the escape I uh, needed. The other person, diverse cast, intriguing storyline, keeps you watching till the end. There's a big story in the globe, big story in almost every paper in America. How do you avoid the – someone had the nerve to text in 
what the ending was, and Jamie immediately uh, uh, deleted it so we wouldn't see it. I, th- I think I made a big mistake on this one because I loved the first season so much that I I decided that I would be impatient and I would just wait till it was all finished and watch it. And when I watched the last season, nobody was really talking about it. I don't know what happened between season one it's and huge. season two. And now I realized I've made a big mistake and I need to be in a bubble for the rest of the day. Who's the great local actress who I Jennifer talk- Coolidge. Jennifer Coolidge is so spectacular. Yeah. I haven't seen any of White Lotus, but I know how it's huge and... I'm going to try to do that thing too. By the way, if we had the three stars in terms of podcasts of uh, the biggest podcast hit ever in the UK, my father wrote a porno and I listened to a few more over the weekend. It is a riot. And if you weren't listening when they were with us, they, they, why why are you making a face? It made me think of something. You you said porno and it made me think of something. What porn thing are you going to recommend? (laughs) There's this kind of silly, but really engaging show on Hulu right now about, uh, God, what's it called? But it's about the guy who founded Chippendales. Is that true? Yeah. I didn't know about that. This is great. Every, if you weren't listening the other day, every, this guy's father, this is true, wrote a horrible, uh, horribly written, uh, actually five porn novels and they read a chapter every week and comment on it. And it's really, really, really funny. Let's go to Becky and Woburn. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Hey, Becky. Hey, Becky. Are you looking for Steffi and Wobbin? I meant Steffi and Wobbin. We've got both your name and your town <laughs> wrong, but we do know that you're on the line, so we're close. Hi. Uh, oh, okay. Hey, Steffi, what's up? Okay. So um, for shows that people should watch. One is Years and Years, which is a few years old, but it's from like the first year of the Trump administration. (laughs) And it takes place in Britain, and Emma Thompson becomes a Trump-like political figure. That is a tough, tough, tough show, because eventually we found ourselves in Years and Years. Would you not agree? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But it was so well done. What else you got? Um, And then also on the British front there's grant chester which was amazing and broad church which has oh, olivia coleman one of the best ever where her first line is i didn't get the position and i thought don't worry honey you're gonna get a better job very soon <laughs> 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 and then um i just finished a series called mount pleasant which i found on prime again a british series about seven years worth and it's a quaint little town with the cutest characters and they have the funniest um uh nicknames for one another like the child is called flower just because that's what they say to somebody and it's so charming and on the also on the charming front is uh, ladies of letters which is the um Anne Reed, who is the woman in um, one of the stars of Last Tango in Halifax, mm-hmm. she and another actor, actress, it, they're just acting, but and their lines are all letters that they've written to one another, and their relationship, which is so clever and charming, again, British, and um, yet... They can really cut one another at the same time. Becky, uh, Steffi, that, that, that's well done. That was great. You great list. And by the way, when she mentioned uh, uh, Broadchurch, which is one of the great shows ever, yes, uh, Livy Coleman is brilliant in that. It's the first time I've ever heard of her actually when I saw that. Uh, you, everybody knows who listens to the show. I'm in a Nordic noir, Scandinavian noir, and these are just these dark, 
detector of things, usually the lead detective or investigator is a woman. They're great border town, the killing, the bridge. Trapped is in Iceland, so I don't know if that counts as Nordic War. But they are – you watch any of those or no? You don't no, do not that? No, really. Oh, I they're... have watched everything that, that um, Steffi was talking about though. You have? Yeah. Or Becky, as we tend to call her. <laughs> or, or Becky from Hoover. Yeah. <laughs> Deborah in a car, you are next. What we're trying to do is uh, help each other with things to watch in the days we hope everybody has at least some off uh, over the Christmas holiday. Hey, Deborah, what's up? Hi, Deborah. I don't know if anyone's mentioned this before, but by far my favorite of this season has been Magpie Murders on public uh, on PBS. It's a murder mystery times. It's murder mystery squared. There's like a mystery inside a mystery, and it's about a publisher who's publishing a mystery book, but she gets involved in the mystery of the author's death. It is so brilliant. The actors are wonderful British actors, like Leslie Manville is the lead. Oh, and um, it's it's just amazing. It's so brilliant. Um, it's just been fantastic. That's all I can say. It was just, it was like watching like a meta mystery, one inside the other. Wow, that and sounds the great. The characters play, play two roles. They play the role in this novel and the role in real life. It's just really worth the time. By the way, Leslie Manville has now been mentioned twice in 10 minutes on the show. Deborah, thank you much for the call. Have you seen that? It's a masterpiece thing. I know. Our colleagues upstairs will be very happy. I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> I'm, I'm ashamed to admit it. Eight seven seven three zero one. 8970. And, you know, Marjorie's favorite, I'm sure everybody heard this the other day. Uh, she mentioned a pretty controversial Christ, Christmas movie. Are you a Love Actually fan or you're not? I a, am a Love Actually fan. Yeah, I think yeah. we're. So is it on PC to like Love Actually? <laughs> That's what I hear sometimes, yeah. but it just had its big 20th anniversary celebration. She watched the celebration. It was a celebration on television. It, yeah. She watched that too. 8773. Zero one eighty nine seventy. I forgot. Occupied is great. Occupied is another one. I think that's Norway. I'm not sure. Another Nordic noir thing. That's like an environmental uh, uh, thriller, which is sort of oxymoronic, but it is really it is great. Bronwyn in Winchester. We hope we got one of those two things right. Welcome. Hi. <laughs> yeah. Hi. Can you hear me? We can. Hello. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Yes, you got you got them both right. Good. Um, I just want to shout out to a uh, show called La Otra Narada. Also PBS, and, right? It's also PBS. Yeah. You got We're huge fans of PBS. That's it great. translates the boarding school. Uh-huh. It's a 1920s uh, Spanish language with subtitles. Um, the boarding school itself is a girls' boarding school in the 1920s, and it takes place in Sevilla, and it's just it's just amazing i'm hoping there'll be a second season um they're sort of uh, fiddling around with that but it's got it's got some tough questions some serious issues some funny stuff this it's just it's brilliant so great recommendation PBS. again bronwyn another <laughs> pbs thing neither jared nor i have seen but thanks for uh Sharing, we'll try to catch up. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seven. You ever seen that? I, I have not, but that's be- maybe because I was too busy watching the bear recently. I know I'm always li- for television. Bear's I'm always great. a little bit behind. Although, Explain what the bear is. So the bear. We have one of the co-stars on the show, by the way, who's a local kid. She's she great. Went to one. Where did she go? Roxbury Latin or yeah, one of the. I'm not one sure. Great school yeah. and yeah, it's about this chef who's in one of those super intense Michelin star restaurants in New York, and it just all explodes. He goes home to take over his brother's restaurant in Chicago. He and- dies. His brother, right? He dies, yeah. and he and he takes over applying everything that he used 
in the Michelin star restaurant, but it's the characters are rich. The shooting is rich. It's very intense, but it's really fun. You know, the, I loved it, uh, but I, I almost felt it was like too intense. You know, it, I, I was actually anxious I, during some of the shows. I which, watched the first episode and then I had to take a break before that, well, going back to the second one. Well, that's probably a wise move. Yeah. I think that was a really good move. Molly, you're in West Newbury. You're on Boston Public Radio with your recommendation. What is it? Bad Sisters, 100%. <laughs> Sharon Horgan from Ireland. It is just enchanting and funny and it's, uh, it has a great cliffhanger at the end, and I just was traveling to Ireland. I was so excited to watch all of the scenes. It was just a gorgeous visual and uh, emotional roller coaster. You know, I forgot to mention that when I was recommending it at the top of the segment. It is beautiful. I mean, it's not a hundred. I looked at it, it's not a hundred percent shot in Ireland. It's mostly shot in Ireland. A little piece. One of the women's houses, almost all of which are beautiful sisters' houses, the Garveys, is uh, I guess physically in England. But it is just a spectacular. So Marjorie told I saw the last episode last night. She said one of the best endings ever. She was right. Do you agree? I agree. It was just couldn't uh, surprise us, and we just couldn't wait for the next season. Hopefully, she'll write another one. I think she was surprised by how well it did. Yeah, it was fabulous. I just totally fabulous. Molly, I'm glad you liked it. Thanks for the recommendation. You know, I was not aware uh, uh Sharon Horgan, right? Is that her name? Yes. Who co-wrote this or co-created this? She's a brilliant actor, too. Just brilliant. All the sisters were, as I said. What's the name of and the show? And I was show? going to say, yeah, if you haven't seen Catastrophe, which she did with Rob McElhaney, who Rob, uh, oh, yeah. a Boston, a Massachusetts native, go back and see that, too. That is not not McElhaney. What's his? Is Mac, it, yeah. No, is it McElhaney? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll we'll be corrected, but that is okay. a hilarious show about a married couple. He moves over to England, and she wrote that too. Yes, uh, I, I think maybe they, I think they collaborated on that one actually, and she it is, is it's so wrong and so hilarious. <laughs> it's all of my favorite things in one, and That's, I think you can watch that going. It was on Showtime originally or something, but it's worth it. It's hilarious. Where do you want to go? Uh, let's go to Jenna calling from the car. Hey, Jenna. Hey guys, how are you? Excellent. Great. Excellent. Um, so I just want to put in a plug for Bad Sisters as well. I started watching it, I don't know, months and months ago, and I watched a couple of seasons or a couple of uh, episodes and then binge watched the rest of them. And just the, um, the opening to that, the music and just the cinematography is amazing. Um, so great. The other thing I Well, before you leave Bad is, Sisters, before you leave it, you know, one of the things we haven't said. Would you not agree he's one of the great, maybe 10 best villains ever on television? Oh, yeah. I mean, the moment I met that guy, I, I was met like, that guy. yeah, I would off him, too. <laughs> so, <Oof. yes. laughs> Go ahead, Jenna. What's the other thing? <laughs> um, so the other one that I wanted to plug um, is Shetland, um, which is a detective show with Jimmy Perez is the lead detective on the Shetland Islands. I have, like, a very special connection there. My grandpa brought home a Shetland pony for me when I was a little girl um, on a steamer, BTW. And um, just the, the, the characters are so well-developed. The, you know, murder mysteries are great. It's so suspenseful. And after watching years and years of American, um, you know, crime shows where you basically figure out the plot in the first three minutes... Mm-hmm. This is like that great kind of cerebral um, show where you actually have to think about stuff and put all the pieces together. And for 
those who love Scotland and England, the Shetland Islands, the just the you know scenery is amazing. So Shetland, I think they're finally getting their rolling out their next season. They were suspended because of pandemic, but again, um, just an amazing show. Boy, that was and a hell of a recommendation, like, Jenna. That sounds yeah, great. I'm sorry. You told, me, you told me I was a sane soul once when I was talking about, I can't remember, like coffee or something like that. So I am clearly a sane soul. You're two for two. What can I say, Jenna? Yeah. Thanks yet again. I have a correction to make. It's Rob Delaney. I, Delaney, it's Rob Delaney right. yeah. You know he's an Irish kind of thing. Yeah. Well, yeah, even though he's from Massachusetts. And I forgot that when I was looking up to find my wrong, I forgot that Carrie Fisher's in it, too. She, she is? She plays his mother. How great was Carrie Fisher? Carrie Fisher's alive, right? No. Oh, she's not? No. Remember, she died right after Debbie Reynolds died. She did? Yeah. Well, that, was her mother. For, right before. Right, right before. Right, yeah, she died. John, and don't then, ever mess with John Parker when Debbie it comes Reynolds to details about kind these of a broken kind of heart. Yeah. Oh, is that true? Yeah. yeah. Is that why they say she died? I mean, it ended up being something heart-related, right, John? That's horrible. No, oh, that's yeah. really hard. Now, by the way, a texter is much kinder to Marjorie than either you or I. <laughs> she says, is Marjorie, or the texter, man or woman, I don't know who it is, but is Marjorie is Nin, someone needs to mention what? Secretariat, oh boy. of course. Here we go. Like a tremendous machine. That is correct, like a tremendous That gave me time machine. to finish my pilk. That's a, now, by the way, the show's over. What, what, explain to people who aren't it. <laughs> what is pilk? You finished the whole damn thing? I did. What is pilk again for people who just tuned in? Pepsi and milk. And you say it ages well. You have to let it breathe? Is that the notion? You have to let it breathe and warm. I mean, when do you ever say that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, what is it again? Uh, Pepsi and milk. You said that. Okay. Warm milk. That's plenty. Yeah. Okay, that's it. Thank you. All right. Well, Bad thanks. Sisters is the consensus. Check it out. You haven't seen it. I'm going to stay up till tomorrow watching White Lotus and Bad Sisters it all in one night. Could not be more fun. It is huge. It's great. Well, that's thank it. you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Keep up with us 24 7 by way of our podcast. Tune in tomorrow. Marjorie will be back, and BPR will be live at the Boston Public Library with Boston Mayor Michelle Wu for her December edition of Ask the Mayor. They'll also be joined by retired federal judge Nancy Gertner, NBC Sports Boston's Trenny Casey, and comedian Chris Fleming ahead of his show at the Wilbur. Our crew is Zoe Matthews, Aidan Conley, and Mackenzie Farkas. Additional support provided by Fernando Cervantes and Brendan Didi. Our engineer is John LeClaire Parker. Our executive producer is Jamie Bologna. What's coming up on Greater Boston? Well, tonight? it's my last week as hosting Greater Boston. Thursday night's last night. Tonight is a good start to the week. Two of my favorite guests together. Incredible. Larry Tribe and former federal judge Nancy Gertner. We're going to spend the whole half hour talking about all the legal travails that Donald Trump uh, finds himself in. And you know what's incredible? As you probably know, Larry Tribe has taught virtually every player. Adam Schiff on the committee says he's going to be criminal referrals. He was in his class. Merrick Garland's going to make the decision. He was in his class. Wow. Roberts, etc. The two of them together are fabulous. That'll be the whole half hour tonight at 7 o'clock on uh, Greater Boston. Again, reminder, tomorrow, Mayor Wu with us at the library. What time is Mayor Wu? Can someone tell me? 12.30 to 1.30. She'll take your calls, questions, etc. You should show up. You can ask her a question face-to-face. A week from tomorrow at noon, uh, the governor-elect will make her first appearance as governor-elect for uh, Ask the Governor-elect. That'd be Maura Healy. Two Tuesdays in a row right before Christmas. We're done for today. Jared, you were fabulous as always. Really love working with you. Fun to be with you. Marjorie's back tomorrow. I am Jim Browdy. I'm Jared Bowen. Have a great day, and we'll see you tomorrow at the BPL.